Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. Hello, everybody. It is September 4th, 2019, otherwise known as New Comic Book Day, and welcome to the Talking Comics Podcast. You're listening to episode number 406. I am your host, Steve Say, and joining me this week are Mr. Bob Ryer, Kelly Ho, and Sarah Miles. Hey! Hello! We've got an amazing podcast for you guys this week. Not only are we going to do some damage to your bank accounts by talking up some of this past week's must-read titles, we've Mm -hmm. also got a special guest occupying the interview chair as well. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to announce that later on in the show, we'll be joined by Steeple, Bad Machinery, By Night, and Giant Days creator, John Allison. Uh, We're obviously big fans of John's uh, work, so this is without a doubt a real treat for all of us. Big thanks to Joey for making the arrangements. Unfortunately, he couldn't be here today because he's generously volunteered to teach Hamilton dance routines to dolphins in the Arctic. But Bob has crafted a fine interview for (laughs) John in his stead. Uh, We hope you're keeping warm, Joey, and we always appreciate your gracious acts of uh, humanitarianism. So stay warm, and we'll catch you next week when you can uh, tell us all about your adventures. Yeah, dolphins, good? man, they really creep me out. They're so smart. Yeah, that's, that's why, why they creep me out. They're smarter than we are. <laughs> They'll pick up those dance routines in no time, though. Uh, that's true. Well, I was talking to Joey about it the other day via text, and he said that he was very hopeful about the whole thing just because of how smart they are. And uh, he seemed pretty confident that they'll be able to uh, nail all the moves and everything he said he'll have video and whatnot yeah. so i look forward to checking it out I'm I mean, sure his, co- his choreography is awesome as well so you know yes yeah i'm uh, sure they remix the songs too because they're great singers yes 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 oh boy i swam the dolphins once in uh actually no i didn't swim with the dolphins i biked with the dolphins i went to california with my family and on the fisherman's wharf they had these little like boats that you sit down on and you you pedal like like on a bike yeah 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 and yeah yeah you steer the thing and we're out in the bay and we're doing our thing me and my mom and like seven nine dolphins just coming up around us and, and kind of swimming and jumping and doing the whole thing next to us it was amazing so i was um i was in the sea once in australia and someone started yelling shark, 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 and everyone started freaking out and like paddling desperately to get out of the water. And then someone was like, "It's not sharks, it's dolphins!" And it was <gasps> amazing. <laughs> it's a big difference. 
it was a big difference. And then later on on the same holiday, I did accidentally swim with sharks and it was terrifying. Accidentally? Ow. Well, I was on the Great Barrier Reef and nobody told me that there were sharks there. So I saw a shark and I freaked out. And then it turned out that it was like a completely harmless shark and there were thousands of them and it wasn't as big as I thought it was. And by the time I went back to find it, it had gone. Wow. Aww. And that's the story of why you shouldn't read Jaws when you're on holiday in Australia. <laughs> Good point. You ever see those those Jaws screenings where people are in like inner tubes in the middle of the water, like a quarter yeah, they've, off portion they've, of the water? they've done them in Brighton. Not that Aww. we get great whites, but... Yeah, they you sit in your little inflatable paddling pool thing, and they show you jaws, and oh, sharks are going to get you. But I <laughs> would imagine it would, frankly, be quite terrifying because I nearly had a heart attack when I saw an actual real life shark. Yeah, I've got an overactive imagination. I don't know that I'd be able to handle that. <laughs> but anyway, hey, did you see the story that was in the news this week? They found a shark in the off Greenland. It's three hundred years old. Yes, I did see that. It's like, ah, <laughs> I'm telling you, they're coming back. 300, yeah, the 300-year-old shark has got to be pretty clever. All righty. Uh, how about some lightning rounds? Sure. Do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, obviously, John will join us later in the show as per usual. And, uh, yeah, we've got lightning rounds. We've got uh, a little unfortunate bit of news that we'll discuss a bit later and uh maybe an album review for everyone hmm? has any new music come out steve oh has i don't it? know i don't know i wouldn't know anything about that <laughs> <laughs> no apologies i make no apologies whatsoever i get obnoxious not about too many things, but I promise to only be obnoxious for a little a little That's bit longer still not obnoxious why don't you just go for it now no, no, I no? got to build up to it, Bob. Okay, okay. I, gotta, I can feel it. It's down at the bottom of my feet right now. I got to wait until it's about right by my waist, and then I'll be ready to go. Wow. All right, yeah, that's that's what it does. That's what it does to me. All right, I'm going to put five minutes on the clock for you. For who? And for who? For you. You didn't say that. You just said you. Oh. Hugh well. isn't here. He's in Wales. Oh, I see what you did there. Okay, Bob, you have okay. five minutes on the clock and go. Wonder Woman number 77 by G. Willow Wilson, Jesus Mourinho, Vicente Cifuentes, and Romulo Fajardo Jr. has some amazing moments as a very special Wonder Woman story, even if it suffers a bit due to being caught in that event black hole thing. Sadly, I can't say too much without spoiling it for Sarah, who's catching up. But mm. the title is Loveless, and it's the first part of Ms. Wilson's finale on this series. Steve Orlando will be returning with issue number 82, and as he did a fabulous job on issues 51 to 55, 51 being one of my favorite Wonder Woman issues ever, I believe Diana will be in very good hands. With my kind of mixed feelings about the latest Ms. Marvel issue, you should know that it was a pleasure to read Marvel Team-Up number 5 by Clint McElroy, Iguara, Filippo Sobrero, and Clayton Cowles. Oh, tons, tons of nods to Marvel history with some big surprises too. Set into an, an intriguing mystery, what made the story sing was just wonderful interplay between Kamala and Carol. 
As I said last week, if you're feeling as Joey and I are about the main Ms. Marvel title, Try Marvel Team Up, I think you'll really enjoy it. Two blasts from the past, so to speak, finish up my lightning round. First up, the delightful Power Pack Grow Up one-shot, which reunites that team's co-creators Louise Simonson and June Brigman on a charming tale that reads as if it was part of their original run from the 1980s. Said in those early days, we have a threat from space that requires some, how do I say this, expert help? Oh. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm all about that today. But all within the context of a story that illustrates the strength of family, which is so important in that original series. If you're a fan from those old days, or even if you're just becoming acquainted with the power siblings through Jeremy Whitley's Future Foundation, I highly recommend you pick this one up. Finally, there's Marvel Comics 1000, a book which I've fetched about previously regarding its numbering, which makes little sense, as well as the testosterone-heavy creative lineup, which makes even less sense. Marvel Comics 1001, by the way, does much to fix the latter, the former Nigevald. Anyway, as both a celebration of Marvel's 80th anniversary and as an opening to a new story, I thought the book was a winner. Al Ewing's envelope story drops into many key moments in Marvel history, knitting them together in some very surprising ways, including a cliffhanger that points to some dire events to come. As a side note, some of the connecting connections are possible due to the printing limitations of the past that allow for some characters from back then to weave them into important new stories because you couldn't really tell what they looked like back then. Yeah, some great scenes with people like Jimmy Woo. We've got scientists from back in FF and the Him days. Just tons and tons of good stuff. Again, it, as Sarah has pointed out, looking at the list of creators on the back and seeing a hundred names, and eight of them are women. And whoa, what? Yeah, and and yep. prob- and probably only slightly more than that, or maybe slightly less, are people of color. It is a problem. Again, we will see what issue one thousand one brings to that point it does seem a little more equitable but as a comic book on its own al ewing did a great job in doing some some really great archaeology to come up with a wonderful hook that's it for me what is it going to take for marvel to like bust out the rolodex on events like this (laughs) and for somebody in that room to call this stuff out and say, listen, this is not enough. Like we need to, we need to broaden our horizons and, and call some old friends and get them to come back for this. Well, they, they did in that sense in that on this list are Kelly Sue DeConnick, Gail Simone, Catherine Immonen. So there are some heavy hitters on that side. Kelly Thompson did a great Elsa Bloodstone story that also features Jeff, the land shark just for fun. (laughs) But that is that is, I just read to you basically all the ladies involved. So no Sarah I, Pacelli. No I Sarah Pacelli. I would also Pacelli. suggest that perhaps if you look at the um, editor in chief, the chief creative officer, the president, and the executive producer of Marvel, you can maybe see where the problem lies. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Not that I'm saying it's, you know, four middle-aged white men, one of whom once pretended to be Asian so that he could write manga, not saying that's the issue, 100% saying that's the issue. Um, But, you know, time for a sea change. 
I went into my local comic shop on Saturday and they went, oh, we put one in there. Did you want it? And I literally stood there and showed them the back of the book and explained why I wasn't going to be buying it. Um, and they were like, yeah, yeah, we should have worried about that. Good. Sorry. Do you think there's going to ever be some kind of a sea change or is this about what we can expect from the big two and we just need to get our our dosage from indie books? It's a little book. Go ahead, Sarah. I I buy very, very few books from DC and Marvel anymore for that exact reason. Um, And I think until comics create or comics publishers realize that that's what's happening, I don't think they're going to make any changes. But I would also suggest that the readership of comics is changing and the way people read comics is changing and that the big two are going to have to realize that soon because you only have to look at the likes of Aftershock or Scout or Vault to see the quality, not only of books that they're putting out, but also of creators for them to realize it. Um, I mean, Marvel are doing better. They've got books coming out this week from Sean and Maguire, from Vita Ayala. Um, You know, they're they're getting more female and non-binary creators. But when what is probably going to be their biggest title of the year, they can only name eight female creators. Out of 100. It's Well, it says on the front of the book, 80 creative teams, but there's between 80 and 100 names printed on the back mm-hmm. of the book. Okay. And out of those, I managed to count eight that were female creators. Yeah, Rainbow Roll, Teeny Howard's on this list, but yeah, it is slim. In general, their percentage, if you check uh, Tim Hanley's Straight and Circumstances site, he does a scoreboard. Marvel is at around 23% female creators and or editors, which is much higher than DC. It's actually higher than, I think, everyone but Image. It's still not good enough. And as Sarah points out quite rightly, with the readership changing so much, Part of the reason that readership is changing is those the other companies that are doing a better job of this are attracting new readers, a, a different readership entirely, and that's that's where there's going to be growth. And without mm. thinking about that, it, you end up in a self-perpetuating cycle. DC has some great creators. They have some great books, but they are look to be drifting back into the 90s at some level overriding events and gimmicky covers and not that Marvel doesn't do gimmicky covers. Every book has at least three and this one has 24. (laughs) Uh, But DC has cardstock glow in the dark covers next week or whatever that counts separately and everything else. Right. One thing that annoyed me, I got as a giveaway and I think there might even be an ad for it in here. Another Marvel young guns. Oh, this old song. Yes. Which, um, Young guns include Russell Dowderman and Mike Del Mundo. Mike Del Mundo's leading the company. (laughs) He's your young gun? There's been one woman across nine iterations, I think it is, of young guns in 15 years, and that was Sarah Pacelli. Guys, wake up. Indeed. I concur. Harumph. Harump, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, let's change the mood a little bit here. Yes. Because I know Sarah's got some uh, fantastic books to talk about for her lightning round. Of course. (laughs) Bring it. 
All right, I'm going to put five minutes on the clock for you and a go. I'm going to be honest, I probably won't need my five minutes this week because I may have read every single Giant Days book this week. And trust me, folks, that takes time. However, that being said, I'm going to kick off with Sarah and the Royal Stars number two from John Sway, Audrey Mock, Raul Angelo and Jim Campbell. Um, I spoke about issue one when it came out, and I know that a few of our lovely listeners actually got in touch with me to say they had picked it up off the back of our comments. Mm-hmm. Um, issue two came out this past week, and it was equally as glorious as the first. I actually follow John Sway on Twitter now, and he went on a bit of a dive into the way he researches for his writing, which for me has only added to my enjoyment of this book, knowing what he's put into it. Um, In this issue, we get intrigue, we get royal familial fighting, we get a subplot involving demons or vampires or maybe something else entirely. Um, The art from Audrey Mock with colours from Raul Angelo continues to be stunning. The colour palette of deep reds and royal blues and royal purples and the lushest forest greens you can imagine Mm -hmm. is just absolutely beautiful. This book is delectable and I just want to immerse myself in the world. Um, But one other thing that I want to mention as a sidebar is that this book is published by Vault. 24 pages long, $3.99 on the cover price. There is not one advert in here to break up the flow of the story. You get the entire story in one go. There's a couple of pages at the back about upcoming titles, which did actually make me want to read one of their other books, um, even though it appears to be about space porn. Um, just I'm something sorry, I spotted. What? Space porn. Space, space porn. Um, the oh, you're going to have to go <laughs> back to that when you're done with your lightning round. <laughs> um, it was just something I spotted when I was reading it, and I just thought it was noteworthy that there's not an ad to be seen. Um, the next book I want to mention is Tommy Gun Wizards Number 1 from Christian Ward, Sammy Kivela, Dee Tunnicliffe, and Hassan Otsmani Elhu. Now, obviously, we talked about this book when we interviewed Christian a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to bring it back up now that it's in the public domain, because... I really enjoyed doing it. And I, as we all know, books live or die on sales and pre-orders thanks to the Comics Direct Market and the way it works. So if you enjoyed reading it, please let your comic shop know that you would like to add it to your pool. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do give this one a try. Um, in case you somehow missed the interview, this is a tale of Prohibition era Chicago, except that alcohol is fine. It's magic that is banned. And Elliot Ness and his untouchables are out to get Al Capone for supplying illicit goods to magicians. Um, super fun read. Really gets into that kind of gangster style Chicago that everybody knows from Hollywood. Um, really, really enjoyed reading it. My last book is slightly unusual for me in that it's a Marvel book. What? I bought a a Marvel book. Only because it was the She-Hulk annual. Um, Alexander Petrie, Andy McDonald, Matt Miller, and VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, It shouldn't come to any surprise to anyone that I pick this up. It stars a strong female protagonist, and apparently I have something of a penchant for those. Um, The elevator pitch here is that Reed Richards has invented a device to store the copied consciousness of the Avengers, in case of emergency, of course. But obviously, something goes wrong during the process, and Jen Walters ends up stuck in a body that is kind of a cross between C-3PM and the Terminator, um, while spoilers... Bullseye runs around in her body, um, throwing pithy one-liners and 
mailboxes. Um, as one shots go, this was a fun ride, although Bullseye did get the lion's share of the jokes and I'd like to have seen more humour from Ms. Waters. But the story fit really, really well. All the beats landed for me and I got to see plenty of my favourite green muscly hero in action. Plus, there was a scene involving a library stack that reinforced the fact that She-Hulk has brawn and brains that I very much appreciated. And the book puns. Oh, the book puns. If you read it for nothing else, read it for the book jokes. Can you give us an um, example? Uh, yes, hold on. Let me grab my book when she is talking about, um, you could say his system got Dewey decimated. Ah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And she, there's even just a panel of her laughing at her own really terrible jokes. And I really appreciate that because I laugh at my own really terrible jokes. But <laughs> I was going to make let, a bad joke, but I won't. Let me just quickly go back to the title that is um, advertised in the back of Sarah and the Royal Stars. This is a book from Vault. It is called Money Shot. Yeah, it is. Uh, elevator Pitch. In the near future, space travel is ludicrously expensive and largely ignored. Enter Christine Ocampos, inventor of the Starshot teleportation device with a big idea. She'll travel to new worlds, engage intimately with local aliens, and film her exploits for a jaded Earth populace trying to find something new on the internet. <laughs> now, Chris and her merry band of scientists come porn stars explore the universe, each other, and the complexities of sex. A story about scientists having sex with aliens for the glory of mankind and money. And I was just like, do you know what? I'm going to read that. It's by Tim Seeley and Sarah Beattie. Art by Rebecca Isaacs. Colours by Kurt Michael Russell and Letters by Crank. And the cover for issue three is basically, you know, the emoji of the little face with the brain exploding, like the yeah. little mushroom cloud. It's basically a woman with the little mushroom cloud, but there's a reason her brain is exploding. Ah, I see. It is written all over her face. And I was just like, you called your book money shot. Take, just, just take my cash. Just take it. When does this space, come out? Space science porn. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> it doesn't say. <laughs> All right. So yeah, how, maybe you can find it a little, a little bit later. That sounds yeah. amazing. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Icons right. for now. Iconic forever. And do I uh, do I perhaps smell a best breakout artist nomination for Audrey Mock? You might. The, uh... You might just be sniffing that. It's you coming might. up sooner than you think. You might also be looking at a best new series nomination, folks. Whoa! Just saying. It's got it's got, it's got a little heart next to it on my list of books that I've read. Aww. Yeah. If I talk about it on the show, it gets a star. If I'm really excited by it, it gets a heart. <laughs> That's your system? That is my system. I use stars, the, the regular type perfect. versus bold. Oh, yeah, but I hand write my, my list. So stars are purple, hearts are pink. All my All right. notes are color-coordinated. Welcome to the crazy world of me. <laughs> Gotta have a system. Mm -hmm. Bob, what's your system? I have already printed out a blank copy of the nominations form. 
and I write in something that catches my fancy. And hopefully I fill up all the boxes and then edit back down from that with rereads. Okay. Mm. See how that works out. We'll have to have a little powwow about uh, how we're going to run things this year. Yeah. Um, okay. I read She-Hulk Annual Number 1, by the Did way. You? And yeah. I, I'd say this is the Charles Soule era She-Hulk, kind of. Which is a great period. I really, really enjoyed this. Just as Sarah said, I thought it was a great little romp. Really captured the essence of Jennifer Walters' intelligence and sass, as well as all the other stuff. And even some new twists into the old war horse of brain swapping and everything else. I, mm. I'm a very critical Shulky fan, and I really dug this issue. Well, I actually had a text from Bella earlier this week because obviously the She-Hulk TV show got announced and she actually yeah. texted me saying can I recommend some books for her to read with She-Hulk in um, so I will probably actually lend her this one because I think it's it's a pretty good one um, and also I wanted to talk about it because it's still amusing me that people are still cropping up in my mentions going oh they're just inventing female versions of male characters now what? to bandage people oh, oh yeah don't get me started that's oh, yeah. 1979-80 or whatever. And Stan Lee created the show. I know. There was I a know. straight pride parade yesterday. This oh, is, my this God. This is yeah, how yeah. low we've sunk as a people. My God. How insecure do you have to be? Yeah, but did you see the pictures? <laughs> I did. I saw a lot of it. And, and mm. I've never I've never seen anything more pathetic. Or, <laughs> I'm serious. Like, as a, as a man, like, I just... Come on. Why can't you just let people love who they want to love? What's the problem? You know, I don't want to see it. Then never mind. Stay in the house. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I try not to bring that type of stuff up on the show, but sometimes it's hard because comics are steeped in the culture and the culture is a damn mess. Don't Has worry been about for it. A while. I, ever since I had my tattoo done, whenever I explain to people what it means, I would say... 75% of the men that I've shown my tattoo to and explain what it means have followed up with one of two questions. One of them I'm not going to repeat because it's rude and no, you can't. Um, <laughs> and the other one is, what do you have to have pride for anyway? Why can't everyone just, just like get along? I'm like, because people don't just get along. Because people like you ask me stupid questions like the one you just asked me and that's why we still need pride flags. And I get very angry about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm no, on my soapbox now. It's a, no, in, in a in a civilization that has the pendulum on one side for all these years, that people get bent out of shape because some more forward-thinking people to start to move that more to the middle. Mm. Go go back in your mother's basement and leave us alone. I just think there's <laughs> there's so much brainwashing that goes on. Um, through many, many different avenues. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Sorry, let's uh, let's pull ourselves side rabbit hole there. Yes. But hey, go and read Sarah and the Royal Stars because it's amazing. Uh, I have read Sarah and yes. the uh, the stars. I can't remember the full name of it. <laughs> Sarah and the Royal Stars. There you go. I have my notes in front of me because I'm going next, and so I don't have the page. Uh, I only I have both, but I only read the first issue. And I loved it, and I'm I'm really looking forward to reading it again, and then following up with the second. Um, is it an ongoing? I'm not sure. I 
think it's a limited. Um, but speaking of things that aren't ongoing, um, anybody who listened to us talk to Kieran Gillen when he said that he would like to make Once and Future into a bigger world, that's just become an ongoing because issue one went on to its sixth reprint. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they've just announced that that is now going to be an ongoing. Hell um, yeah. So, yeah, that's quite exciting. Um, I'm just desperately trying to pull up information about Sarah and the Royal Stars comics. Do, do, do. All right, you do um, some research. It's got issues listed up to number five. Okay. It doesn't have anything past five, so presumably that would be where it's going to stop. Okay. We'll have to keep an eye on that and see what happens. I've also just made the mistake of Googling money shot. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> there are a lot more listings than you'd figure, I guess. That nanny's asleep at the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> that was a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> All right. I'm going to do my lightning round now. It is out now, though, for anybody. What, what is the 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 book money shot money it's shot like, it's, it's out um, now, like... oh no oh no wait i'm lying it's about porn but it isn't porn uh october oh october. so it's 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 coming you would say hey hey ah! <laughs> how are you spelling that uh, just... this is actually there's quite a few different ways you could spell it yeah. like, Mom, i've seen uh i've seen some things and some stuff all right, let's move on. The first issue is set for release on October the 23rd. Oh, my life. I've just seen the cover for issue one. That, that's that's a thing. Yeah. Put a, put, a, put a heart next to it. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be right, premature sure about it. I'm going to put five minutes on the clock, but let's be honest here, people. All right. <laughs> Harley Quinn. Breaking Glass, a DC graphic novel written by Mariko Tamaki with just uh, the art by Steve Pugh. It, uh, we'll talk about it. Presented as a twisted tale or a twisted take on Little Red Riding Hood, Breaking Glass finds Harley as an effervescent and mischievous high school student having just moved to Gotham to live with her grandmother. Unfortunately, Harley's grandmother died a few weeks prior to her arrival, and no one bothered to inform the family. Oh, Yeah, it was actually quite sad. I was like, oh no. Uh, living in her grandmother's apartment is Mama, a doting and delightfully fabulous queen who owns and operates Mama's, the most inspired drag club this side of Gotham. While living with Mama and her queen crew made up of Hello Dolly, D-A-L-I, Betty Coop, Mia Culpa, and Maxima Impact, Harley, <laughs> Harley quickly learns a new meaning for the word family. The queens delight in Harley's wide-eyed wonder uh, about the world and want nothing more than to nurture her creativity, help her to understand her lunacy, and give her a place where she can always feel safe. Honestly, her relationship with the queens was some of the most endearing displays of love and acceptance that I've seen in comics all of this year, and I ate it up. This is a feel-good book. Make no mistake about that. Uh, upon going to school, Harley meets Ivy, who's been reimagined for this novel as a vivacious woman of color and someone who's taken root against oppression and oh. ultimately the unlawful gentrification of her neighborhood. 
Much of the book finds Harley and Ivy teaming up to run uh, to ruin Kane Industries and run them out of the city. A conglomerate who wants to cleanse Harley and Ivy's home and turn it into a high-end racket for all the mucky mucks. As you would imagine, the Joker also plays a significant role in the story, though he's unlike any version of the villain that I've seen before. Uh, for me, Joker was very much V from V for Vendetta in Breaking Glass. His... Even his appearance is crazy. He's got, like, a plastic bag over his face that he's pulled to his face and tied in the back and has, like, almost these felt features, eyes and a mouth, like, uh, safety pinned onto them. It's a really unique look from the character. I loved it. Ooh. He, he appears, uh, appeals to Harley's wild side, and together they venture down a dark path that has Harley constantly questioning his motivations. Mariko Tamaki handles the ins and outs of their destructive relationship absurdly well here and provides a lot of explanation as to uh, exactly what Harley can't resist about his uh, deceptive nature. So the art. Oh, my goodness. Steve Pugh is a monster on this book. His style reminds me of a bit of Adam Hughes, but with an added beauty and flair. Also, way way less cheesecake you won't find anything to ogle here but some of the best artwork that i've seen all year or ever in harley's long-standing career as the queen pin of crime there are also so many standout pages and panels this book is filled with smiles uh lifting up uh the lifting up of others when they're down and good old-fashioned chaos uh, I was expecting something fun and pretty when I picked this up at the shop, but what I got was one of the most surprising graphic novels of the year, and the retooling of a beloved character like Harley. Uh, I wish that this was the new canon for her, because it it is such a pure and enjoyable uh, way to experience the character. So people who end up reading the book will know that what I'm talking about when they read it, but this next part, but don't be a booger. And go pick this one up. (laughs) Go read it. You'll see. Uh, As far as I know, it's only available in physical format. And this is from the DC Inc. uh, imprint. And Mm. it is definitely uh, T for teen. Nothing uh, nothing too heinous. The language is is okay. But, um, my God. Like, I just... I, you all know that I, I love Harley Quinn. This is there are so many artists that that do that character justice uh, throughout her time as being a character, but I've never seen a more beautiful Harley Quinn than Steve Pugh's. Just even the makeup designs for the character and how she kind of becomes the Harley Quinn uh, by way of the drag queens and them kind of taking her in as one of their own and clothing her and giving her makeup to hide her face as she goes out into the night and causes mischief it's awesome all right uh and it's very it's a very empowering book as well like with with a lot of stuff going on in the world uh it also feels very timely and and uh gave me gave me a bit of that old like riot feeling the rage against the machine a little bit and uh, i appreciated that yeah um i've already used up my five minutes but whatever (laughs) <laughs> pumpkin heads written by rainbow raul art by faith Aaron hicks 
Oh, I said I was going to read the synopsis, and I'm going to take that out. And this. I'm already going to buy it from that creative team, let's yeah. be honest. Okay, every autumn, all through high school, they've worked together at the world's best pumpkin patch. They say goodbye every Halloween, and they're reunited every September 1st. But this Halloween is different. Josie and Deja are finally seniors. It's their last season at the patch, their last shift together, their last goodbye. Josie is ready to spend the whole night feeling melancholy about it. He's the melancholy type. But Deja has a plan. What if, instead of moping and instead of the usual, slinging lima beans down at the succotash hut, they went out with a bang? They could see all the sights, taste all the snacks. Maybe Josie could even talk to that cute girl he's been mooning over for the past three years. What if their last shift was an adventure? So that's the setup for Pumpkin Heads. Pumpkin Heads gave me the feels, y'all, real <laughs> bad. I flew through this book when I sat down to read it yesterday. Uh, I adore stories about searching for love in all the wrong places and discovering new things about yourself. I think it's a nice theme. Uh, autumn is absolutely my favorite time of the year. And Pumpkin Heads has got me watching the leaves thinking about Halloween parties. We just got invited to one last night and just the longing for that time of the year where everything is dead and crisp and the air smells like burning. And I just, I love it. The book is also like the jacket said, quite an adventure. Josie and Deja's mission takes them all over the pumpkin patch from the succotash hut to the s'mores pit and through the corn maze and the pumpkin bomb stand, which, by the way, if you don't know what a pumpkin bomb is, let me tell you. It is two slices of pumpkin pie on a stick and then dipped in chocolate and then drizzled with caramel. So oh, wow. imagine that, right? I've never so, had pumpkin pie. You've never what? had pumpkin pie? What? We- we don't do pumpkin pie over here. We don't do so Halloween don't in the way that you life? do. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That is exactly what I'm saying. You need a, a slice of pumpkin pie. You need a little bit of cinnamon, just a little bit of whipped cream, and and somewhere to be alone. That's that's alone with the whipped cream. It's very much pumpkin. I feel close. Pumpkin pie makes me feel almost as close to Bob's cheesecake. That is still, hands down, the best... I was going to say the best thing I ever put in my mouth. I'm not going to say that. It is the best... Buddy shot. It is the best (laughs) cheesecake I have ever eaten, and I miss it so, so much. My grandmother thanks you. Yes. um, Sarah is a cheesecake maven, by the way. I, I have promised that I will make better another cheesecake. I had forgotten that. You've just reminded me. I really should get around to doing that at some point awesome mm. uh so yeah so that's um that's pretty much it for me uh, i don't really have a lot of other notes i just i i loved pumpkin heads i've seen this book hyped up on twitter for quite a while uh both of these creators rainbow doing her work on runaways and of course faith Aaron hicks being a, a favorite of this podcast pretty much since we've started it yeah and um it's just it's it's amazing to to see them working together and making just a very sweet, feel-good story. And, uh, you know, a pre- some, sometimes sometimes the, the, the people that you need to place more stock in, they're, they're right in front of you. You don't always need to go 
go off looking for love. Sometimes they're right there. So. Meow. On the Harley front, how young can this go down to? It's, um, it's going to be gift giving season, and I'm always looking for younger folks. I would say it's a it's a teen book, like, definitely a teen book. Okay, yeah, thirteen and up. Um, like there's not there's not a lot of language, but I mean Ivy for one is she is fire, you know, like she she's got her priorities straight. She is an activist. She's going up against the uh, man-heavy film club that's in the school that they're not showing any films with uh, female directors, writers, or leads. She takes a stand against that. Uh, there is a threat from Kane uh, about the like community garden that she has a plot at. And there's this really, really beautiful shot at one point in the book where she takes all of her stuff from the garden and brings it home to her house. And you get to see like a true foreshadowing of who she becomes down the road as she's surrounded by all this foliage and everything. And I cannot express how ridiculously gorgeous the art is. I, I, I loved Skip uh, that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. That really blew me away. This is another book that just kind of threw my hair back, and I just went, wow. Um, so many pages and panels that you would want to just rip out of this book and throw onto a print and put up in your in your house. Um, the outfits, oh my god. The outfits that they come up with for Harley. She doesn't have just the one look throughout. She has like nine or ten different looks throughout the book, and they're all stellar. So... It's a really cool, like, evolution of the character type of thing. And it's really, she's really sweet. It kind of, it kind of paints the character in a different light. You really get inside of her head in this, and you kind of explore her naivete, but she's, it's also, like, a self-aware naivete, and she kind of explains a bit of her infatuation uh, with people that might be bad for her. And it's just, it's one of those points in the book where this has been, you know, uh, a point of contention for a lot of people throughout the years, the Harley and Joker relationship. And it's just obvious that Mariko has given, has given this a lot of thought and, and wanted to tell, you know, her version of, of why Harley kind of ends up in these patterns. And I thought that it was really, really well handled. And it was a, a sweet couple of pages kind of giving you some insight into that character and why she might be uh, a bit gullible at times. But the the clock is always ticking in the back of her mind and she she's always keeping score uh in ways and and she kind of jumps into certain situations knowing what she's in for and the the call for exploration and the call for throwing wrenches into her life to see how it changes her life is, is part of that um wanting to embrace things that might not necessarily be good for her at all times so mm, yeah Good stuff for Harley. We've got the Stefan Shejich Harleen yes. coming out this month, too. Oh, man. It's a good time. It's a good time to be a Harley Quinn fan. This uh, was, I, I miss those days when it was, remember, we had a Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotio when they yep. launched. And that first run was so much fun. Yes. And it's, it's sort of, yeah, <laughs> 4,000 dogs in our Coney Island building. And it's it's sort of drifted over the last couple of years. And she's just a great character. Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear that people are, are now taking a slightly different 
tack on this, and I'm I'm happy for that. Yeah, it's really cool, and they 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 constantly revisit the idea of it being a fairy tale, which I thought was kind of cool. And so there's a lot of um, like allusions to that stuff within the story, and the Joker character, even just stylistically, is so cool and uh, very calculating, and uh, I really really dug it. Like I. I expected to enjoy it. I'd seen previews of it and it looked gorgeous and I wanted to check it out, but I had no idea that it was going to have this uh, tremendous impact on me and kind of retool the character to be this like super endearing fish out of water character that comes into this family of drag queens. And just like the, the roller derby stuff was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. That's what I was thinking. The yeah. Character. yeah. You're she, Mariko and Steve are kind of doing that again with the drag scene and it just when you see how they execute it it makes so much sense and i really really do wish that this book somehow managed to be canon uh for her just to kind of give her different roots and not have all of it be uh like family tragedy that she'd experienced in in earlier books and earlier takes on the character um the idea that nobody told the mom that her mother had died though that was a little sad yeah i go no all right. Um, so you all know it was coming. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it this one time because I can't not talk about it. If you don't want to hear me talk about the new Tool <laughs> album, uh, skip ahead a couple of minutes, whatever. Um, Wait, that was or, a new Tool album? Yeah. I didn't know. I <laughs> have they been, have they been away? Have they been so, away? Uh, I'll try to be quick about this, but I likely won't be. Um so, let me see. I have no retell the story of listening to it for the first time. Okay. So, I had this whole plan mapped out for myself. I set up the fire pit in the backyard. I'm going to do the whole thing. I'm going to put my feet up. I'm going to light the fire. And it's just going to be me and the elements. And I'm going to do the whole thing. And I go outside to go get something from my car. And I see the biggest skunk Whoa. this side of Canada just tromping around. And he stops across the street and he looks over at me and we locked eyes and he was like, oh, we're out here. Go ahead. Like, have your fire. I've come. I've, I've gotten underneath the, uh, the fence before. I could do it again. <laughs> so I immediately had to reevaluate uh, what I was going to do to listen to it. So I wound up sitting in uh, this thing that we call the fish chair that Bronwyn's father uh, had made several years ago. And uh, I was going to listen to the album, and I brought my crayons, and I brought my my sketch pad, and I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna draw, I'm gonna be inspired, and all these fireworks are gonna be going on in my head. And then what happened was, I got through the first song because I've heard the first song over a hundred times by now, so I was okay for that. But I couldn't land on anything, I couldn't get into any kind of groove. And then toward the end of the first song, it hit me. And for the first time in 13 years, I'm listening to a Tool album and I have absolutely no idea what's about to happen. What's going to come up next? What is the next thing that I'm going to hear? And I was just too transfixed and too transported to do any kind of drawing whatsoever. So I was up from midnight until 5.30 in the morning uh, drinking monkey shoulder whiskey. I had a long weekend. And my aviator headphones, and I was ready to go. The thing that I love about not just the music and, and the album and the, the fact that it's here 
is that over the past couple of weeks, friends of mine have been coming out of the woodwork, uh, particularly my buddy Chris, who he and I were close for years. The way that we, we actually met, we met in high school in 11th grade, first day for me in a new school, and I go into Mrs. Serbo's art class, and I don't know who to sit next to, I don't know anybody, and I go and I end up sitting across the table from Chris. And, of course, when you have notebooks, you draw on them. And I drew a nice tool logo and some of my characters around it. And I sit down, and he looks across the table, and he goes, Tool? I go, yeah. And he goes, yeah or yeah? And I went, yeah. And he goes, okay, then. <laughs> and we were, we were best friends from that point on. And, and it was amazing. For me, Tool is, they're a unifier. You know, their music is connected to so many significant people and events in my life. It might have taken them 13 years to release this album, but they always come around when I seem to need them the most. And with having fallen, having, sorry, with having fallen in love with Bronwyn, remarried, gained new family and new friends, moving to Canada. Uh, becoming assistant editor-in-chief over at Joe Blow, uh, now being the host of this podcast and having more fun with talking comics than ever, you know, I'm ready for a new musical mountain to climb. And ever since the release of Anima and Lateralis and 10,000 Days after that, each album has served as a, a beacon of change for me. And I, I can't help but become reflective when they release new music and like their music makes me want to be a better person. It makes me want to reevaluate uh, myself. And so as far as the album goes, I'm still putting my, my thoughts together. I've listened to it in total upward of like seven times by now. And uh, it just keeps getting better and better every time that I hear it. A lot of the album is about getting older. It's about self evolution and outing the horrors that are happening all around us. The lyrical content is some of the best Maynard has ever written, and musically, the songs are just, they're titanic, they're complicated, they're baffling, they're strange, they're theatrical, and epic beyond measure. Some of the time signatures happening on this album, I don't even know how humans are capable of that kind of dexterity. It's 85-plus minutes of awe-inspiring epicness every main track that isn't a segue or an intermission is well over 10 minutes long there's a song called tempest at the end of the album that's 16 minutes <laughs> others are 10 and change 11 13 12 like it's it's absolutely just madness the, in my mind this is basically this is tools version of pink floyd's the wall in its mm -hmm. its messaging and its iconography and I have no doubt that in time, Fear Inoculum will go down not just as one of the band's best, but as one of the greatest rock albums of all time. I have full confidence in that. And yeah, I mean, I've just been having a time with this. I went and listened to it in the park yesterday. Um, I got totally hammered when I listened to it that first time. Man, that first, that first listen, there's nothing like it. Like, I cried. I cried and cried and cried when I listened to Fear Inoculum, the song, about two weeks ago when they released that as a tease. Um, I didn't cry this time around listening to the rest of the album just because I was so involved in already trying to decipher it and figure it out and, and sort my 
emotions, but I mean, it's just, it sounds like 13 years worth of work. It sounds like 13 years worth of ideas and stripping away the ones that don't work and, and piecing them all together to make something that feels alive and like something that they've never done before. Like there are definitely a couple of familiar uh, riffs and, and hooks and stuff like that, but everything is expanded upon and it's layered and the drummer Danny is using instruments that I've never even heard and he's cracking these things off and it's just I can't even I I, I ugh. I've stood right next to him during a drum solo when he played with Pygmy Love Circus uh, out in Huntington and so I've seen him work with my own eyes right in front and he is just a blur of of arms and legs like an octopus just flying around <laughs> those drums and it's just it's a beautiful thing to watch him work and the way that he plays on this album is second to none and i'm every time that i've put it on since it came out it feels like i'm hearing it for the first time and like i'm starting to memorize the lyrics now and i'm starting to know when to come in because i love to sing their music in the car and around the house and stuff like that and um yeah i mean this is this is this is our time for a lot of people that have been waiting for this, and I just hope that everybody that's out there listening to it. I had a lot of people reach out to me uh, from Talking Comics and otherwise to you know basically say enjoy yourself or or ask me my opinion as to what do I what do I think, and um, and I think that that's lovely. I think it's really cool that no matter how much time passes, that there were definitely at least a few people that I haven't talked to in years that likely had thought of me on Friday, even if we didn't talk once they had figured out that a new Tool album has dropped, because I am... We go together like peanut butter and jelly. Everybody knows that if you talk to Steve, his favorite band is Tool. So, <laughs> you know, people that I haven't connected with in a long time, even if we didn't speak that day, or we'll never speak again, I can guarantee you that, like, a little flag went off in their head and they thought about me for a minute. Good or ill, I don't know. But, um... It's just nice that there is a there is a thing in this world that makes me feel connected to as many people as I do feel connected to uh, through this band and and whenever they do something and uh, we'll see what happens on Wednesday when uh, those presale tickets go up looking to go to two shows in Toronto back to back and uh, my friend Chris that I mentioned earlier he's planning to come out for them and uh, it's gonna be a thing so. Yep. Big venue or club date? Uh, or? Yeah, the Scotiabank. Uh, we saw them about two or three years ago, Bronwyn and I, uh, at the Scotiabank. And it's awesome. It's very much like a Madison Square Garden oh, kind okay. of thing. Um, but, like, not a bad seat in the house. So the um, the Canadian arenas are very smartly built that um, a lot of their structuring on, on how they do seating depends on the capacity and how many tickets they've sold. So... If like a big show is going on, but it didn't sell enough to um, like to to open up the entire venue, they'll literally drop a curtain down halfway, and they'll they'll turn it into this really intimate experience, and uh, it's just really cool the way that they do that. But I mean, this is going to be full. It's going to be almost impossible to get into this show every single time that they come around. Uh, there's a high probability that you're not going to go because they sell out in about 14 seconds flat. Hmm. So you gotta either you gotta be Johnny on the spot, 
or you got to pray that somebody plugged in the wrong credit card and you get another shot at it because they just they just go. So like if you get in, there's no time to be like, oh, I don't know if I really like those seats. It doesn't matter. You Take hit, them, can, yeah, them, you hit yeah. continue and you go and you you get them because um, that's the only way that you're getting in. I seem to have extraordinary luck when it comes to this band, uh, but uh, you really, you never know. I used to have a lot of hookups in the Ticketmaster arena that I no longer have, uh, and so there's lots of nerves every time that this opportunity comes around. So I have a chance on Wednesday and a chance on Friday. If I if I screw up the presale, uh, they go on sale to the public on Friday. So uh, we'll see what happens. I'm going to have to talk to my people, and uh, we'll have to mount an attack. Anyway... Your people, I like that. Yeah, my people. All right, so I think that uh, let's do let's do a little bit of news, and then uh, we'll take a break, and we'll introduce our guest, Sarah. <gasps> you had uh, you had brought something to our attention uh, right before we started to record. Do you want to tell people what's up? Yeah, so I got an email from my local comic shop this afternoon um, with a little sad face in the message title and i'm basically just going to read the whole email out because it's the easier way of explaining it with next week's new comics we are unfortunately having to implement some price rises on new comics and graphic novels our supplier diamond who are the only supplier for comics in the uk have implemented an across the board price rise of about seven percent while it has been about three years since we saw price increases, the uncertainty around Brexit and its associated impact on the pound-dollar exchange rate have exacerbated the situation. We obviously won't be increasing prices on back issues and graphic novel prices will remain at the old level until we have to reorder them. We know this isn't great news, but we hope you understand why it has happened and we do appreciate your continued custom and love of funny books. Please do get in contact if you need to change your order or for feedback in general. You will, of course, continue to get free bags and boards, which have also seen a substantial price increase and all your books stored carefully for you. So what does this mean? Um, a book that has a $2.99 cover price used to be £2.45 is now going to be £2.60. A $3.99 book has gone up from £3.25 to £3.50. And a $4.99 book has now gone from £4.10 to £4.35. It might not sound like a lot. It's either 15 or 25p per book. But anybody who listens to this show hears us every week talking about the insane number of books that we're buying. And when you're picking up 10 or 12 books a week, 25p on the price of a book is a book, yeah. virtually. Um, so I have already emailed them back and said, can you send me over a copy of my poll? Because I'm going to have to reevaluate what I'm picking up off the back of this. I can't imagine I'm going to be the only one. Um, I mean, you know, they are very good. I've been shopping there at my local comic shop since they opened, which was probably five years ago. And to the best of my knowledge, they've only raised prices once in that entire time. Um, but obviously, if Diamond are implementing a 7% price raise, that means everybody's going to be seeing price rises. Um, and... This week, um, a shop in, I think it's in the Midlands, called Darkside Comics, actually announced that it was closing. 
Um, I haven't been there myself. When Bob, do you remember when we were in Escape Pod Comics in Huntington? Yeah. And uh, the owner there mentioned someone called Bucky who did a lot for the comic scene in the UK and Mm. ran a store. Yes. Dark Side was... was, That's Dark Side. So basically Bucky, who um, ran Dark Side, they announced probably three, four weeks ago that they were going to stop ordering single issue books because they could not afford to keep single issue books in stock anymore. Um, They were still going to order books for people that were pre-ordering them. If you had a book on a pull, they would still order it, but you would have to, um, you know, it was on the basis that you were paying for those books. Um, But they weren't going to be carrying any other copies of single issue books. They were just going to be selling graphic novels. But even that, They've had wow. to they've had to make the decision that they cannot keep the store going anymore, um, and that was even before a seven percent price rise was was announced. So, yeah, I just I wanted to bring it to the table because, as everybody knows, because we talked about it before, the direct market is the only way for people or for comic book shops to order most comics in the UK, um, and. I say it every time we do a Ladies of Valhalla show where we talk about a comic. You can buy your books from evil giant conglomerates if you want. But if you have a local comic store, please support them because they're struggling. And, you know, the, the very fact that my local comic shop has actually emailed all of their customers that have pull lists to tell them that they're going to have to put price rises up. Um, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that they've told me that they haven't waited until I've gone in there on Wednesday, but even so it's going to have a knock on effect. Yeah. Amazon certainly wouldn't send you an email. No, (laughs) no. So, and and respect your, your local store to do the right thing by them beyond your patronage to give them the heads up. As you always talked about how important pre-ordering is. Mm. If you're going to, as Sarah might have to, change your pull list tell them that ahead of time don't let things sit there don't let them order extra copies and in three months from now decide you know i really wasn't digging that anymore and just put those back stores are on such a small margin now Mm. and with that sort of price increase when you diamonds a monopoly for the most part you can buy your graphic novels from from other sources or the young adult things might come through a different source comic books are basically diamond Mm. and so the store needs to really hew close to the vest to try to keep these things calm and you see these posts of of store owners sitting next to piles of books that weren't picked up or just got thrown back on the shelf but just as the person was leaving thousand dollars that could be the store's rent for the month and it's sitting in a pile of unused books that they paid for and now have no chance of getting rid of three weeks or four weeks or two or three months out from when they were actually a hot commodity on the shelf. It's a dated product, guys. Yeah. Yeah, every week that goes by, it becomes dated. Yeah. Mm. I mean, as an example of where it also mentioned not just the price rise, but the exchange rate, I changed the money into dollars in April. And five hundred pounds got me six hundred and thirty dollars. That won't even get me six hundred dollars now. That'll get me like five hundred and ninety. 
Wow. Wow. So that also has to be taken into account. And unfortunately, that is largely down to politics and the uncertainty that we have in UK politics at the moment um, is is destroying the exchange rate, which also means people who work in comics who live in the UK but get paid in dollars, are their pay is changing as well. So support comic artists, folks. Be nice yeah, to yeah. comic book shops. I'm trying to make a positive out of this one. <laughs> it's a reminder that we, as consumers, need to do a better job too. Mm. Just because you can, <laughs> just mm, just because you can buy it cheaper on Amazon. I mean, like we all joke about the amount that we spend on comics and how we're all poor. And I did actually have somebody say to me the other day, "Oh, you made a joke on the show about how you can't afford to eat food, but you're going back to New York again." And I'm like, "Yeah." That's why I can't afford to eat food, because I want to spend my money on things like going to see my friends. And if that means I have to make sacrifices in other places, I'm going to. But at the same time, if I'm going to buy a graphic novel or a trade paperback, I'll pay the extra few pounds and I'll buy it from my local comic book shop and I'll make a sacrifice somewhere else. I won't I won't go to the pub for a beer on a Friday night or something because I'd rather make savings in other places to shop local and support local than to give money to Amazon. Sorry, Amazon. Like if you're listening through the microphone in my phone, I don't mean to be big, big Amazon's here. I don't mean to be mean to you, but you are a terrible faceless corporation. And Owen that runs my local comic book shop is a nice cheery chappy who always greets me when I go in and Ali and Matt that work there are also both really nice. Um, I'm not going to say all the customers are really nice because one of them the other day asked if I was Ali's mum. Oh. Ali is 23. Oh. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, it was funny because um, I've also just said that I will start playing um, a game of D&D there once a week. And it turns out that guy's going to be the DM. I was like, brilliant. I'm going to play an old person. And I'm going to talk in old person voice and I'm never going to let him forget the day he asked if I was Ali's mum. The heck as a class. (laughs) (laughs) If it wasn't before, it's going to be now. (laughs) All right. Well, I uh, real sorry to hear about that situation, Sarah. I hope that uh, you're looking old. (laughs) Everybody can get their uh, their shit together and and possibly uh, make that situation better. But uh, I also admire your fortitude for wanting to help your fellow man uh super quick though i do want to just remind myself i want to run down the books that we talked about this podcast super quick uh bob's books were wonder woman number 77 marvel team up number five power pack grow up marvel comics 1000 sarah had sarah and the royal stars number two tommy gun wizards number one and she hulk annual number one Uh, I talked about Harley Quinn, Breaking Glass, graphic novel from DC Inc., and Pumpkin Heads from Rainbow Raoul and Faith Aaron Hicks is a first-second joint. So there you go. All right. um, So yeah, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to be joined by John Allison to talk some steeple and giant days and bad machinery all kinds of good times uh hang out and we'll be back in just a moment
Hey everybody, we are back. We have a very, very special guest with us uh, in the studio. I'm going to toss the talking stick over to Bob. Bob, would you please make the introductions? Thank you, Steve. Absolutely so. We are thrilled to be able to chat today with one of our favorite creators and one of our bucket bucket list guests, John Allison. Hello. Hello, John. Mr. Allison is the writer and sometimes writer-artist behind such series as Bad Machinery and By Night, as well as the upcoming Dark Horse miniseries Steeple. And, of course, we'll also be talking about the multiple Eisner Award winner Giant Days. John, welcome to the Talking Comics podcast. Oh, hello. It's my pleasure to be there. Uh, we've waited a long time to be able to, to chat with you, so this is this is a great thrill for us. So if we get a little... Squee, if you know what I mean. We're, you know, it's going to be that kind of day. There's no nerves here. It's fine. No nerves. No nerves <laughs> at all. Uh, Sarah and I have both done the complete Giant Days reread in the <laughs> previous few days, so be prepared for that as we move on. That's fine. I'm sure you remember a lot of things that I've already forgotten, so I'll look forward to you know being startled by my own wit and wisdom. <laughs> yes, we we will go issue by issue through moments. No, we, no, we won't. Go. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've seen I've seen creators at tables as fans come up with their laundry list, and it's I did that book seven years ago. I I don't remember that at all. So, we will I will hopefully refrain from that, but bear with me if I do. Before we dive into any specific books, we're always interested in our in our guest comic book origin story. How did the comic art form enter your life? Um, I think like most kids in Britain in the eighties, comics were still everywhere, and you would be bought them to keep you quiet to keep you entertained so when i was about you know six or seven i think the comics i got were things like rupert the bear which is a kind of british institution um and there was like a, there was like a weekly that was my first weekly comic was like rupert the bear and then that finished and i will have graduated on to kind of marvel uk reprints of stuff and then i got i think probably the transformers comic because like all sort of seven eight years i was monomaniacal about something and it was transformers and so I read that for a long time and then through that kind of got into the US Marvels. And really, that was my journey. You know, that was me up until I was kind of a mid to late teenager. That was what I read, really, Marvel stuff and very little else. Uh, ever drift backwards into some of the UK sort of classic things? 2000 I, AD, Tank Girl, Modesty Blaze, that sort of stuff? Um, I, I, My brother got... Uh, the Judge Dread magazine, perhaps to differentiate himself from me, um, which was full of really good artists. You know, there was a ama- they're amazing artists like Jamie Hewlett had a strip mm-hmm. in there called Hewlett's Haircut. So that was kind of my first exposure to Jamie Hewlett. I think um, was was reading that. Never read Modesty Blaze, although I was talking about it with somebody yesterday because there's a there used to be a newspaper supplement with the Sunday times newspaper called the fun day times which was just kind of like kid strips but when it started weirdly it ran modesty blaze this would have been in the late 80s yeah and obviously this didn't last long because modesty blaze was very much for the dads you know not for the kids (laughs) so that's really that was been um and so when i was looking at modesty blaze just the other day i was like wow i've never really engaged with this at all so no my engagement was generally just with us stuff i was kind of a little america file as a child <laughs> in those american books what was your favorite i like the x comics okay. kind of the late 80s x comics i really liked brett blevins and louise simonson on new mutants that's kind of like my ground zero comic for wanting to make comics and seeing a comic that really spoke to me about what comics should be like 
Um, I, you know, I like Chris Claremont and things like that. I like Peter David's Hulk, you know, the the, the standards, the real mm-hmm. kind of, you know, gold standard of the era, John Byrne, things like that. I didn't have particularly, um, you know, wild taste, but I was a snob. And I definitely <laughs> I, I knew what I liked when I was nine. I, I can see the artists that I like. Then I'm like, oh, I can see why I like them. Very dynamic. Look at that line work. I'm like, yeah, little yeah. snob. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're, and to you, it gets thrown around as a pejorative, but you're an elitist. You just demand the best. I am. I am. One the, yes, I am part of the uh, the elites. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. I, I am. I like. I like to think of myself as a member of the cognoscenti, even you know when I was still wearing like short trousers to school. uh as a youngster did you you start to create comics then i did almost as soon as i started reading comics and had any kind of agency at all i started making them i remember i made the first transformers comic i made probably when i had about three issues of it and i it was all drawn on the back of kleenex boxes my mum used to cut (laughs) kleenex boxes up can you tell we weren't super rich when i was a kid she used to cut Kleenex box up to make shopping lists on you. Know, she'd use the sides to write shopping lists on, but yeah. the big square back, which would be kind of, you know, almost like comic book sized, I would kind of draw on the backs of those. I can remember making my first Transformers comic on Kleenex boxes, but then my dad started stealing paper from work for me, so that solved that problem. <laughs> <laughs> my dad. He cut the letterhead off. It was fine. Yeah. <laughs> I used to, all my comics were square because he cut the letterhead off with the guillotine at work. Do they have a watermark or anything on them that would be recognisable after all this time if you publish them? Well, my father worked for the magistrates' court, so you know, for the courts, the law. (laughs) He was a court clerk, so you know, it was on really nice stock. You know, this was real heavyweight paper, beautiful watermarks and paper courtesy of Her Majesty's government. So, um, you know, my my tax dollars at work, so to speak. Good for you. You should use those things. My dad, my dad worked in the ink business. And he would bring home what amounted to, I guess, 11 by 17 pieces of cardboard. Oh, wow. It was supposed right. to be on, on top of the, of the cans of ink and paint. Sure, and yeah. So they were, like, they were like murals I could draw up in my little attic room. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, the best thing I had as a kid, and I know that I'm sure this is what your listeners are waiting for to hear, was I had a roll, you know, wallpaper backing paper, you know, the, the stuff, the kind of real like, heavy-duty paper. Yeah. I had like a roll of that, and then some... It was a, something you could buy. It would like attach and you could just roll it out. You get a whole new page, draw on it, and just it had a little rip off at the bottom. And you could you just work your way through a whole roll of wallpaper. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, those, those were the days. The infinite canvas. Yeah, do any of those survive? No. When I was about 14 in a teenage snit, I burned all my childhood. No! <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Ne- never, you know, underestimate it. A teenage what boy's love of fire. What was and the scene for that? Like, was this barrel or bonfire? <laughs> One of my friends was having a bonfire at his house. He said, "Oh, just bring along anything you've got, you know, cardboard boxes or, or whatever." We were just messing about in the kind of the field outside his house, and I just, I thought, "Oh, I've got these comics. I don't ever want to look at these again. God, I'll never want to look at these again." I said, and. Uh, <laughs> And um, just threw him on the bonfire. His dad was actually an, an illustrator and designer. And when he found out what I'd done, he just looked at me and said, oh, you'll regret that. And I did. <laughs> My adolescent guilt is coming back because of this conversation. My mom, when I was growing up, um, she would sometimes clean houses and offices. And there was a lawyer's office that every now and again I would go with her. 
and they had a back stock room of like all the pens, all the sharpies, all the legal pads that you could ever want. And I would rate it every now and again when we were there. <laughs> and does anybody remember the cool spots from the Seven Up commercials? Oh yes, yeah. yes. Okay, I had a, I had one comic I used to draw when I was little. I think it was called like Animal House or something like that. But the other thing that I absolutely loved to draw after the Genesis game came out was the cool spots. Mm. And I had just so many comic books of them getting up to shenanigans within kind of like this honey i shrunk the kids style of artwork where everything was bigger than they were they were surfing with seven up bottles in the in the ocean and stuff like that and uh oh man i don't i still have some of those in my uh in my storage it's pretty awesome you go so That's, yeah it's good hang on to that juvenilia really i mean it's it's priceless now when i look at the stuff that I, i've got the stuff after i was 14 i still have the things i drew after that but it's a little bit more self-conscious mm-hmm. you know it's, it's not quite that kind of freedom of not really knowing how to make something look like what it was going to be so just letting it be what it was absolutely uh, how's well go ahead steve i'm sorry no 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 i was i was going to ask you if you wanted to to continue and then i heard what sounded like a motorcycle <laughs> just my tummy rumbling i think (laughs) me too all right bob go ahead yeah uh considering your early creativity what was the first story you submitted or pitched was it to a school newspaper or where did where did your first work see print i was very oh where did my first work see print that's a really good question you know i was really reticent about sending stuff off to anybody it was very much a kind of a private thing and i kind of hid stuff away you know i didn't really want anyone to know what I was getting on with. So the first thing I did that saw print, oh no, this is a terrible question. I don't think I know the answer to this. I can remember sending stuff off. I can remember sending, perhaps when I was sort of 17, sending stuff to Marvel and getting the kind of standard rejection letter back. But I don't think I sent anything off even to be considered for publication until I was perhaps in my early 20s. I was, no, I, I, I really didn't like maybe I did things that appeared in like school magazines, but they wouldn't have been comics. They would have been little bits of writing. And even then I don't remember what they were that, you know, it was have been very trivial matters. So yeah, I think the first thing I properly sent off where I actually got notes that meant anything was when I submitted to King features syndicate, like a packet of sample newspaper strips. What did you sample the uh, flash Gordon or the phantom or somebody like that? Or no, I said your own. I sent my own. I sent Bobbins, which ultimately became the webcomic that turned into Scaring oh. Around and everything else. The first 25 strips that are on the old, now very hidden within my website website were the pages that I sent to King Features. And Jay Kennedy, who was the editor there, wrote me a very encouraging letter back that made me feel like I should keep going. He wrote me a really, really nice letter. And he died a few years, I think, maybe in a surfing accident or something like that. And so I always, you know, I always keep a, a good thought for Jay Kennedy because without him, I might never have uh, persisted with my work or thought it had any professional potential at all. Wow. What a lovely story. I I will have to go back and make sure I reread those first 25 again in my second reread to look <laughs> for that. Yes. Um, now, we're also very interested in, in, in quotes here, the process. And particularly so in the case of someone who's a writer artist Mm. in your own self-contained work, which side takes the lead and how does that duality play into scripting for other artists? Well, 
for the most part, I write so that I have something to draw. That's the only reason I ever really started writing. I wasn't a very good writer, so I didn't have a great head for stories. Like, I could write bits of dialogue and stuff, but if you look at my early stuff, it's really primitive. You know, I'm not, it's no great demonstration of genius in the raw. It's really somebody finding their way and learning how to do it quite slowly. So I'm always writing for myself to draw, and because nobody else drew anything I, I'd written for perhaps 15 years or something like that. I'm always thinking, how would I draw this? And when I write the instructions, I write the instructions how I would think out a panel, so to speak, which is always kind of emotionally led. Now, obviously, when I write a comic for myself, I don't type out a full script. Usually I just Mm. draw it in a notebook. I kind of rough out the figures very loosely and write the dialogue on in a bit of a frenzy, a bit like automatic writing almost, and then kind of tidy it up from there. So I kind of had to boil that process into something that somebody else could parse. And after 15 years of kind of, working in a very esoteric way that nobody taught you that you just did it for yourself i had to at first find a way to communicate what i was feeling when i wrote a panel and it was almost quite naked when i wrote that first giant day script for lisa trayman i i was they're going i can't tell, tell what the emotions are here because i'm kind of acting the characters as i think them out sure and so i was almost I was always giving away something about myself that I'd never given away before in writing the kind of underpinning emotions behind the characters. But I still do. it. I try and write what every character's feeling in every panel that could possibly need it. And Giant Days has an awful lot of that in it. And yes. Max has sort of responded to that. That Max is an artist who can draw any emotion better than I could. So now I'm in, in the situation where I go back to do stuff for myself and I'm like, I don't know if I can communicate what I now communicate to myself as well as Max can depict it, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Considering the, the various artists on Giant Days and other script, is scripting for each of the artists different or is it all mostly the same emotional wreckage that you have to create here? Well, uh, really, the issues that I did for Julia Madrigal, Julia was a fill-in because Max wasn't able to draw those issues at fairly short notice. So they were scripts that I'd done for Max. And perhaps if I'd known with more notice for Julia, I would have kind of tailored things differently. But I've worked with two artists for whom English isn't their first language, which creates a problem. And even if you're an, an English person writing for an American person, there'll be tiny little notes that don't translate between the two. So you have to kind of you get a feel after the first issue for how the artist interpreted what you did and then you think right okay this is how I kind of communicate this differently in a way that makes it make more sense to somebody who is from Finland for example. (laughs) Do you ever get your art the art back and discover something new that you have to sort of recraft in the writing? No no I'm very specific I don't ever want to get a surprise back in the art not not an not a bad surprise. That, yeah, because they're really good artists that I've worked with, all of them. So you're not going to get a surprise where something's just a shambles. But the, I, all the artists that I've worked with, I chose particularly because they could communicate the same sort of things that I do when I draw, even if you know their strengths are different to mine as an artist. Um, I don't ever want to have not communicated something to the extent where I look at it and go, Oh, oh, that's what they thought that meant. Oh no, that wasn't what that meant at all. I'm because I've drawn so much myself. I'm always kind of very conscious of laying things out in a way that is as clear as I can be. Because I'd hate to have to deal with somebody's instructions that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But but this is reminding me. I used to do editorial cartoons for the gambling industry. Believe it or not, industry that I hate. By the way, I, I hate gambling. I think it's it's terrible. But I did used to take their coin. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm only their ill-gotten gains went to good use. <laughs> but um, there were two people I used. They were people I'd worked with right at the very start of my graphic design career, and I was still doing cartoons for them years later. And um, they would send me the instructions, and I would just draw whatever they said. And one of them, he had kind of he'd read comics all his life, and so the instructions he gave me were always quite clear. You know, he sort of understood how a cartoon worked, but the other person didn't. And they would ask you for the wildest things. And, you know, I'd, I had to come up with some real fantasia based on this, but often they would ask for something big and something small in a panel at the same time. And that was, uh, yeah, and, that, and but understanding that sort of taught me how to communicate, how to tell somebody else what to draw. Because I realized, yeah, you absolutely have to make sure nobody's ever looking at it and go, how do I draw a dwarf and a Ferris wheel and make sure that you can tell what the dwarf <laughs> is thinking at the yeah. same time showing the whole Ferris wheel. Yeah. <laughs> that that would be an interesting title of her book, The Dwarf and the Ferris Wheel. I'm just oh, it's a good series, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably there's probably like ten kind of seven hundred page books in that, isn't there? The Dwarf uh, and the Ferris Wheel. It's gotta be <laughs> the possibilities. Decor. Yeah. <laughs> uh it's funny when you talk about uh, I mentioned surprise and you're talking about making sure you convey your ideas. There's a famous story that when Stanley got the pages back for Fantastic Four number forty eight, he had a call Jack Kirby and asked, Who's this silver guy on the surfboard? We didn't talk about him, did we? Oh, yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, that's the Marvel method, isn't it? I'm I'm quite scared of the Marvel method, the old 60s Marvel method, where you just get a page from Stan Lee and Stan's like, Right, Jack, here's what you do. (laughs) It's like, you know, four paragraphs that basically tell the whole story. Then Jack Kirby goes away, just draws the pictures, but there's no dialogue. And then you have to try and write dialogue around this. It's, I think that's daunting. I, it really sounds like the wildest way. It wasn't as if scripts didn't exist, you know, before then, that they created this whole <laughs> difficult system that made the whole process about 10 times more difficult. But that was artist-led. You know, the artist was given, really given their hand. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous of that way of working. <laughs> now, who would you cite as your greatest artistic influence and whose work would you aspire to be compared to? Oh, goodness me. My influences are always changing. I used to have like a really set answer to this. And then now when I look, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I still think like that. I mean, Darwin Cook is somebody that I look to all the time now. mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think in the end, that's the sort of continuum that I want to fit into. People like Darwin Cook and Jeff Smith as well. You know, people whose work, you know, it tells you everything. You know, there's like emotionally, it's good. Dynamically, it's good. It's just got a lot going on. I, I love Brett Levin's work in the 80s, which now a lot of people don't know because he kind of went out of comics. But his work, in, you know, the way he drew then was really special and, and different and almost wrong for comics at the time. He, he, Brett Levin's in the 80s. He's more like an artist now. You, you know, he would fit mm. in much better sort of post, you know, sort of the, the influence of animation on comics artists that school of it uh he would have fit me in but they're kind of my three really but again you could ask me on another day and i give you a completely different answer there are so many different things that i like and who would i want to be compared to oh do you know ronald searle who's kind of like what maybe the greatest english cartoonist of Mm -hmm. the century like molesworth and things like that 
I think Searle is still absolutely my the person where people if people said I was anything like as good, which they never will. I'm not. You know that he's got. God, that guy was in a concentration camp. <laughs> I am never going to have the breadth of experience of Ronald Searle. Um, but you know, if if I was able to keep developing my craft and working into my nineties as well, and still good in your nineties, then I think I would take that. Yeah, that, that's that's Mike Drop history right there. Yes, work into your 90s and have been in a concentration camp and produced the work he did for all these years. My goodness. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, our friend Joey, who's was not able to be here today, he's in the air as we speak. He may actually get here by the end, but I'm not sure. He would want to ask about By Night, because we recently interviewed Christine Larson, mm-hmm. and she just gushed about the creativity of a book like By Night and the experience working for Boom. Where did By Night come from as a concept, specifically all the crazy creatures and characters? By Night, I'll be very honest with you. I was asked by Boo if I would do another series because they like giant days. And I and I was in San Diego, perhaps moments after meeting Steve there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, they, I, I was pinned down by... Um, my editor, Shannon, not physically, just with a stare. <laughs> so we have, padding, have to say padding, that in this day and age, yeah. Paddington-like <laughs> stare. And um, and she said, have you got any other ideas, John? And I was like, oh, sure, sure, I've got some ideas. <laughs> and by the end of this meeting, I'd come up with the this idea for By Night, which proved cumbersome um, because I had to keep chopping bits off it, what I told them, because it, it wouldn't have it would not have made sense. And then what came out of it was this very strange series about kind of a crumbling American town and a portal and monsters. And I, and I still God bless Christine, because what I gave her to work with, I'm sure, wasn't what she thought she was going to do. Every month I'd sit down and go, right, by night. Well, and I came up with a master plan. I was sure I was a genius by the time I'd finished. <laughs> I lay it all out. There's an issue that's just about business transactions, as far as I can work out. It's just about a business meeting. You know, there you go. That's the boombox way. That's what the teens want, business. <laughs> so, no, um, I kind of had a structure for it, and I knew I wanted to have, like, monsters and creatures in it. And then if I'd, be, if I'd drawn it on my own, I know that I would not have gone as far in the monsters and creatures direction as initially because that's not my comfort zone. But Christine is absolutely she, like the company she draws are full of like great monsters, yeah. her own work, full of like trolls and orcs and things. So when I'm working that, as this goes back to what you said before, I look at their strengths and I try to play to their strengths and mine at the same time if I can, because, you know, obviously, there's not much point in me going down an alleyway that I, I can't write. But Christine was so good at monsters that I just tried to ladle more of that into it, you know, and, and try and take my imagination kind of into places where she'd have to solve the problem. Because if I was drawing that, I probably couldn't have solved that problem, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Now, he, Joey, also wants to know, why did you want to tell that story that you told in By Night? I think I've revealed that because Shannon... Okay down with a Paddington-like stare. And I That's just, just it, yeah. I mean, I, business, I, it's business. I sound disingenuous yeah. because I'm really proud of those comics to the extent where I would, I'd like to do more stories about those characters. I love those characters. I was so pleased with how they all came out of the book. And I was excited to tell a story and it went in a direction that I would not have anticipated because I was out of my comfort zone. And in the end, I made something that wasn't like anything else that I'd made. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, that's it, really. You know, like sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. In that case, it was. I was able to, you know, working with a talented person, and Sarah Stern, great colorist as well, who lends a lot to that book. 
um, I, can't, I ended up somewhere where I never would have imagined. A bit like the characters in By Night, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nicely uh, done. Uh, as Giant Days got extended, do you have more stories to tell in the By Night universe? And might that happen? Um, I do have more stories to tell. I don't know where exactly I'd tell them. I think twelve. It's a bit. It's a tough market for like indie books, and I I'm a little nervous of shooting multiple indie books into the marketplace as it stands. So I'd have to look really carefully about whether it would be a you know a graphic novel, and someone would have to want to publish it as well, of course. But you know, or whether it would work a slightly different way. I don't know. It's something that is, I've got a few ideas for things that I want to do next, but they're all a bit amorphous. If that, mm, yes, you know, they're not, they're, they've yet to truly crystallize and, and, and be fully formed, but I just love to do, I'd love to draw some finite stories. Um, I really like, because again, the other thing of being a writer artist is when you really get into it, sometimes it's like, Oh God, I wish I could draw an issue of this. And I did get oh. to do a few of giant days because when Max yeah. had a, a couple of times when Max had a month off and it was like, yeah, I really like drawing these characters. It's good yeah. fun. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, do giant days and by night cross over at all in terms of influences or themes? They're both about young people kind of finding the way, but at different stages in their lives. Obviously, Giant Days is very much kind of a proto-adults at university. And by night is people who kind of been thrown out into the modern workplace. I, you know, I, I'm I'm a student of politics and business and everything else, really, because the more you know about the world, the more you can put it into your stories. And it seems that we're in quite a febrile time. And I, I tried to write a little bit of that into um, by night. By night, I... The one thing about By Night that's a bit strange, I set it in America and that made it more difficult because I'm not American. I've never been to South Dakota, but for some reason I decided that was a great place to set it. And so I had to do a lot of research and rely on um, my own, particularly Sophie, my my, uh, editor on By Night to, she would uh, Brit pick me, you know, she would make sure any bad Americanisms that I let slip got fixed. Lesser. Um, yeah, things that creep in from bad movies and television shows, right? It's just it's it's just sometimes you'll use a turn of phrase. There are things that Brit- British English and American English, they're just ways that words get turned around that don't actually marry up and don't make any sense in the other one. And it's really simple stuff. You know, we're the cultural hegemony of America it means that we get exposed to so much American TV that you can kind of you know, you can almost negotiate it, but I still made mistakes. I thought I was so clever, and I'm not, I'm not that clever. I still made loads of mistakes. <laughs> uh, well, you mentioned politics, so let's just dive a bit into Steeple, which is your new five-issue mini from Dark Horse, which has colors by the aforementioned Sarah Stone, letters by Jim Campbell. Having read the various solicitations about the book that described it as political supernatural horror, I just saw that you tweeted this gem. For anyone hoping that Steeple will be a bleak theological treatise, I regret to inform you that it is an attempt to splice Parks and Rec with Preacher, and have been unable to resist labeling it with jokes and fun. Very sorry. Well, I'm hooked, and you should definitely write your own solicitation copy from here on out. Uh, what can you tell us about Steeple and the world it'll inhabit? Well, I think you've, you've said it all. Whoever wrote that tweet just then, what an incredible. incredible. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's it. Well, Parks and Rec is political, and yet at the same time it is fun. So I, I worried that when 
when it was written down on the page, what it seemed that the book was about was as if I'd kind of veered into some kind of tone poem about the modern world, which it isn't. You know, I always think that you know, people's lives persist despite the conversations that go on around kind of politically and, and socially. You know, people pretty much don't change very much, even though all the, they just exist within the context of, you know, whatever the conversation is at the time. So Steeple is a silly comic in the same way that Scary Go Around is a silly comic. Bad things can happen in it, but most people are pretty silly. You know, most people will have a little joke with you, you know, even at the worst of times. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I didn't want people to think I'd suddenly just gone in a direction that exists in a lot of comics. There's a lot of very serious comics. There aren't many funny monthly books, really. They're either almost slapstick or they're very serious kind of genre exercises. And so I would need to make plain at that point that that wasn't the case. I'm not sure I've told you anything about Steeple, though. It's about some priests. There's some, there are, I really worry about describing my series. It's funny, like, parks and reckon it's about priests like preacher that's the safest thing i can say it's <laughs> <laughs> as safe as i could be there's a lot of you know temptation is an issue the sort of things that priests deal with you know on a daily basis they've got to be good or in the case of some of the priests in steeple they've got to be bad but it's very hard to stick to that code when you're a human being yes that the political aspect of it it's uh, what i have read talk about having people find a way to bridge their differences of opinions and so on. And uh, humor to me is very often a gateway to understand the problems or contradictions within one's own in quotes, informed opinions. So here's hoping steeple can do that sort of thing. Now, not to get too heavy on a Sunday, but do you think some people would come too intractable to open their minds in our current climate? I think when people are left alone in front of a glowing rectangle, they can become very intractable. I think when people are faced with the reality of somebody who has a different viewpoint from them, and yet they don't have to talk about that viewpoint, let's just say they start talking about something else first and get along about it, they can very quickly uh, go past that viewpoint. Um, I was reading something, I was reading about the state of Wyoming, the reddest state in America Mm -hmm. the other day. And this is, you know, obviously it's it's as red as you get, you know, it's Republican as you get. And yet they went and talked to the people and they were like, yeah, do you know what? We're not actually that bothered about, you know, stopping people doing what they want to do. We just don't want to do those things. And I thought, yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. And I think that's how most people feel, though. I don't think these kind of performative viewpoints that we, you know, espouse on the internet really reflect how most of us feel when we when we face day-to-day practicalities there are lots of things that we should stand up for and there are lots of principles that are qua good things but i think in the end they they go for people of any political stripe when it comes down to it and the people who seem to not work to that system are often you know they their axe to grind isn't the axe that they're grinding if that makes sense they've just they've just got out of the stream and they people need to be nicer to them effectively i think to get them to come back in but maybe i'm you know a pollyanna-ish or a a dreamer maybe i'm a dreamer that's a good that's a very good thing we had a, a governor of new york mario cuomo who was very liberal and when asked about why he was making sure that uh, women's reproductive rights were protected and so on, considering he was a Roman Catholic, he said, it is not my job as the governor of New York to legislate my religious beliefs on anybody else. 
Well, I think that's right, isn't it? That's right. That's what yeah. the way yours should be. Just let people get on with how they want to live their lives. If they want to form a, a, a little a little area where they do their own thing and all agree with each other, that's fine. But then that's not a reason to just have a go at each other all the time, is it really? You know, there's, there's more, bigger things to worry about and smaller things, I think. Yeah. Great point. Well, here we go. I, I can't bury the lead on this anymore. So... Giant Days number 54, the final regular issue of the series, will be in stores on September 4th. It's been quite a ride, and not only for the characters in the book, because from what I've read, Giant Days started life as a way to hedge your bet, as after you concluded Scary Go Round, you were concerned with how people would receive your new series, Bad Machinery. Can you tell us how you navigated those treacherous waters? Oh, it was a tricky time. Like, Scary Ground had been very popular, but it had probably run a couple of years too long by the time it finished. My enthusiasm was starting to wane and I wanted to sort of broaden what I was doing. And I thought, and I had a few ideas. Bad Machinery, I thought, would be a good idea to like kid detectives. Oh, this will be fun. Maybe they could do some books out of it. You never, like, I've never been sure that webcomics was going to be something that would last much longer. I think I've been proven right in a sense that it's not the cultural force that it once was. So I thought, well, series of kids books people like that but i thought i'll start it as a webcomic i'll hedge my bets and kind of build it from there but it, immediately people weren't that into it because my re- readership was sort of the same age as the characters in scary go around and they mm-hmm. kind of spent a few years kind of growing with them and then when you just put did a story about kids they're like well this isn't about me anymore and people do like to see themselves in things so i knew that bad machinery was worth sticking with but at the same time i realized that perhaps i couldn't do it all the time it couldn't be where like where i'd been doing a webcomic that just ran non-stop so i started looking at other kind of side streams and i and then giant days kind of i drew the characters i sort of thought my sd university comic I, i knew it was an option and it just worked when I when I drew it. I liked the characters straight away. I could see who they were. And I was able to kind of work outwards from there, slowly kind of shaping it into what it ended up being when it came out as the Boom series. Mm-hmm. Uh, you started self-publishing, correct? Those are the ones collected in early registration? The trade. That's right, yeah. So they just ran as webcomics initially. Um, you know, I took a break from um, from Bad Machinery for a, for a month or so and just published the first one. And then... You know, people liked it. I sort of started a second one and thought, oh, no, I can't just abandon Bad Machinery because still people did like it, you know, and, and there were people who wanted to see those characters again. So then I had a bit of a quandary, really. So I had a, a year or so of going, well, shall I do some more? I don't have time to do any more. And, and, and then so they eked out. You know, I did a second one. There was a little, another break. I did the third self-published one. And I was I was selling them at, at cons because I didn't have a publishing deal for Bad Machinery. So I wasn't – I'd been collecting scary go-round into – big kind of 200 page books once a year and selling those but i didn't have new scary ground books bad machinery had yet to sort of enter its on press deal so I, I needed stuff to sell at cons and on my website so i just started collecting up these little stories that i'd done and they ended up selling much better than i expected you know that they, they just flew out at conventions and they were consistent sellers on the website so i knew there was something there and once i saw how many i'd sold of the first one i thought oh, i'll do a second one and a third one because there's there's clearly something that people like here sure uh, they definitely did because then you had the deal with boom for a mini series and then that runs to 55 issues somehow i know steve definitely wants in on this one yes yes yeah. 
Uh, John, could you take us back to when you first received word that Boom wanted to make Giant Days an ongoing series? Well, I remember that initially it was six. And I think after the orders of the first issue were, were much higher than expected, it got up to 12 really quickly. Um, and then it, it sort of happened. I wasn't expecting it. You know, it, psychologically, I wasn't prepared to have to write a lot more issues than six. I had six issues and I thought, I've already done three. I've got to do six more. It's a lot of <laughs> issues. And then it went up to 12. And I thought, well, well, I've got to make their world bigger. So I'm not really answering your question. What did I this, But literally, it was panic. When it all of a sudden I had to I knew I was going to have to think of so many issues. But then it immediately flipped around where. I hope they ask for more issues because once mm. I didn't want it to sort of have to stop at the end of their first year or halfway through their second year. I had to make sure that I kept it vital so that it could keep going because if it flagged in the end, it would have, it would have been a failure if I didn't get to the end of the third year mm. of university in my head, that would have been a failure. So I had to keep it going at that point. And I had to make sure it was the, the best thing that I was doing. When you had created the the original six, did you already have ideas beyond that, or was it kind of the call to arms to make more that got the the brainstorm going on? It was the call to arms to make more. I did not have no. I I, I what I would do was I would send Boom lists of like six synopses, so I'd have to think up six ideas, and then um, you know I'd have six months off having to think up any more ideas, and hopefully during that time. I think up some more ideas but when it when it was ideas time it it was harder for the next the second batch of six but then as time went on I developed arcs it got easier mm-hmm. you know once the character arcs started to emerge I can remember seeing some reviews of the um the first collection or the first features this people were saying well this doesn't really have like a plot this doesn't really have any sort of overarching plot and I thought well, no, it doesn't, because I really didn't think there were going to be that many issues. So that's why they're all sort of <laughs> self-contained issues, because I wanted them to be satisfying in case those were all the issues that there were. But once it became evident there were going to be a lot of issues, I could start to build arcs that would make for more satisfying long-term storytelling. Wow. Um, besides Susan, Daisy, and, and Esther, was there a particular character that you were really excited to explore as the series continued? Oh, let me think. I really liked Ingrid, the kind of troublesome girlfriend figure. Mm. You know, I think a, a lot of people that I knew had bad kind of college age relationships, <laughs> things that really turned them upside down. And I thought it was an important area to explore because a lot of people think, you know, it's your first chance at adulthood. And it's not like having a, a girlfriend back home. You're kind of out in the world. You've kind of got to, you're, you're practicing, you know, you're practicing to be an adult and all of a sudden you have to manage an adult relationship in the adult world and, you know, deal with your, your bills and feeding yourself and everything else. And if it goes wrong, you may never, you've never practiced this before. So I really wanted to kind of see out what would happen if a relationship just w- was faulty in some way and how, how somebody that you liked would extricate themselves from that safely. And so, I, you know, I, I felt with Jonas a lot of times I wanted to kind of show that you could survive these things because I can remember lots of people who are a real mess. You know, it was hard on them. Yeah. It was really hard on them. And so that was that, for Ingrid. But I, as a character, you didn't blame her. You know, she was just faster than Daisy could take. She was a, a faster person than Daisy could take. You know, Daisy was the kind of this kind of homeschooled, very responsible young woman. And then here's this kind of 
flash of lightning and she's got to try and catch it in a bottle and then hold the, her hand down over the top of that bottle while it's burning her hand otherwise she'll lose she'll lose it so that that was one story ed gamble i really liked just a kind of wet boy um mcgraw who was someone who was added on quite late like he wasn't part of the original giant days setup in my self-published ones but i love telling his stories his little diy adventures and he's things one of like my that favorites. i love mcgraw so much yeah he's a good character i don't again really it's every time i learned something in diy i just used it in the comic you know whenever <laughs> i'd you know successfully beaten another household demon back i thought right well that's something i can use you know those scars are, are good for something do you remember um, the particular moment when you found out that it was going to be ongoing? Did it change your perspective of the book? Did you kind of have to, like, after you were done celebrating, did take a step back and whiteboard the Giant Days universe in order to figure out how you were going to make this very ambitious series? Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. Because I think I would have, if you kind of do all the thinking too early, you kind of talk yourself into a state of boredom the important thing mm. was that i had to kind of open up a new area remember in old video games how like the map would only open up as you got close to it yeah you know you, you don't you know like things would all of a sudden fan out and that was the way it was with giant days so every time i got those new six issues to do i would sort of think right okay here's the area we're going to open out and that would reveal things to me and it would keep it fun and exploratory because yeah at 12 issues i'm just trying to think what the, the 13th issue is one where they they go back to Tackleford, don't they? They go back to like the scary go round town. Yeah. And that's kind of a way of saying, okay, now the wider universe has been acknowledged. Mm. Now the kind of, obviously, yes, this is part of my wider works, but, but at the same time, we, I had to sort of contextualize that in a way that people who would never have seen the web comics and lots of giant days, it's obviously have no familiarity with my other work. I had to do it in a way that said, okay, if we engage with, things I did in the past, we're going to do it in this very careful way where people don't need to know anything at all about about my other comics. I'll sort of lay it out like it was new. So if you're a long-term reader, it's like a, a treat. But if you've never seen stuff before, it's got to be built as carefully as all the new characters are. And that was really my thought. The only thought I had was if I'm going to use the old stuff, and I wanted to reference the past because it was important to esther that character had already existed for a really long time mm-hmm. i want I, I had to think of a framework for how that would work and i i did it i only did it a few times in the series but that was the the main thing i knew i wanted to do an issue with charlotte grote yeah i knew i wanted to do an issue with shelly winters and an issue with eustace esther's boyfriend i i sort of knew i had to hit all those points but i didn't know when and i knew that the time would feel right to kind of hit those marks I love your analogy of the video game map. I think that's one of the coolest things that I've heard one of our guests say. It reminds me of uh, when you find the map in Legend of Zelda and you take you find the treasure chest with the compass inside of it. And so you have this red blinking light somewhere in the dungeon and you have to keep making your way through all like the shadowed pieces to understand where you need to go and what traps are set and stuff like that with like the idea of the ongoing being the compass and finding your way to that end. It's pretty awesome. That's right. Yeah. I only, I say I only, the roadmap was only necessary when I knew what the last issue was, because then it was like, okay, the, the academic year gave you the shape. It gave you the shape of what the story was. People had to do certain things at certain times. So it was really just a case of kind of the emotional close that was important to kind of triangulate in on 
right at the end. But no, everything else, it was just, yeah, just explore. It's fun. It's fun to make something that's really long and that has a definite end. You know, you can you can forge all over the place. Just make sure you're heading home, you know, when the sun starts going down. Amazing. Oh, all there right, is Bob. a lot of, yeah, I'll, go, I'll just jump in. There is a, a lot of long game involved. I mean, again, bringing in the entire Tackle Forge universe. But we, we've seen just recently Safi come back from way back about a year or so ago. So these characters, Coralie, introduced about the same time as Daisy is mentoring. So that exploration has been fabulous. And while your book is certainly one of the funniest around, it's those, it, what's made it one of my absolute favorites of all time, it's that those characterizations. You've given your leads humanity. And they've shown real growth in the changes with the relationships between themselves and their supporting characters. I know this probably wasn't part of your initial plan, as you've just described it to us. But while you were going, did these characters evolve by themselves in the way that some writers say they sort of, the characters write themselves? Or this was, did you go have any false, false roads to go down that you had to come back from? Oh, that's interesting. False roads. The thing was, because I'd done so much cartooning on scary go around i'd sort of learned to spot the traps that you can send a character into like there's a way when characters get tired i found that characters you like i like drawing them but there was nothing left to write for them and i'd write them too long they'd stay involved too long and then they'd become you know readers like them and i like drawing them but the characters didn't have anything left to do and the important thing with giant days was just not to go into any of those traps where a character kind of marched on too long but uh, they do reveal themselves to so you, you. They can't help but if you've got a sort of rule for them in your head. But I was just lucky. It had a, it was a tight cast and a tight focus, and I didn't get bored of anybody really. So yeah, it was a, a bit of a bit of both. I sort of they they stayed true to who they were, but there was a bit of discovery along the way, but not too much, and they didn't get worn out. Yeah, because there are some wonderful leaps when. Uh, Oh, this might be a spoiler only because the the trade that we're continuing isn't out yet. But there are events at the end of issue fifty with yes. Graham, and that then issue fifty one is just so lovely. The moments with Susan and Graham, and, and we see a different side of Esther as well when Daisy came out to her to her grand at some point. Those are so real and relatable. Uh, I'm I'm tearing up. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. Well, that, obviously, I do I that think, a lot around you. No, no, it's no, it's lovely. It's lovely to see you, a man able to show emotion. I think that's really important. Don't don't hide your tears, my friend. Okay. Uh, no, seriously, I, I, it's a really gentle sort of voyage of discovery. There were certain things that, like what happens in issue fifty and fifty one. I knew I wanted to happen in this comic. But I didn't know actually, I didn't know whether it was going to happen in Bad Machinery or whether it was going to happen in Giant Days. It was just an event. And I thought this is something I can write about and write about usefully. But in the end, I saved it for Giant Days because it felt more important there and it felt more useful there. Um, but again, I, I won't say too much because it is a bit of a spoiler, but it was hard to write. And I did a lot of research for that. I made sure that I, I did my reading and I'm not the world's most diligent researcher. But for that one, I, I did a lot of work to make sure that issue 51 kind of answered the questions it was meant to answer. It sure did. Uh, I'm, we do an end of the year show. We do our own little Oscars and your issue 51 is on my list for best single issue. Oh, well, thank you very much. But of course, 54 is coming. And so is the, after that special issue entitled as time goes by, 
Yes. If it's possible to say without spoiling anything, what's the premise of that? And might there be a chance of revisiting the lady somewhere down the road? Um, the As Time Goes By special. Well, I wanted the most kind of sedate, mellow title for it possible. <laughs> and when I did the first issue of Giant Days, the first self-published issue, I would take it to conventions and people used to say, that it looked like Scott Pilgrim. It reminded them of Scott Pilgrim. It was, it was a little. I lent a little too because I loved Scott Pilgrim. I lent a little too hard into Scott Pilgrim. You know, there's one. There's a point in the in that first issue where like Daisy is yogic flying, and there's a lot of fighting and stuff. Not, it's not a whole issue of fighting, but because there are more pages, there's space for a fight as well as the stuff that's in a usual 22 page issue of Giant Days. The as time goes by, special leans as hard into what everything I was trying not to do in those, um, you know, the issues that came after that first one that people told me was like, it's got a problem. I, I've paid tribute to Brian Lee O'Malley, the man who ultimately inspired me to kind of make giant days in the first place. There's a, it, it leans back into that kind of um, storytelling, if you like, but it's set a year and a bit after the end of issue 54 so you get to see what the ladies are up to where their lives have gone um as you know as they after the end of the fourth year of university yeah so you get to see them you get to see mcgraw you get to see ed gemmel oh yeah you, you'll get to those characters but that will be it i don't as it stands want to do any more comics with those characters because i feel like you owe readers an end and I've done postscripts to everything I've done. You know, I've gone, oh, here's another story. Hooray. And the readers will love this. And they, they like it to an extent. But I always feel a little bit tired by the time. You know, I start with enthusiasm and I end feeling jaded. And I feel like I don't want to kind of pass that jadedness on, if at all possible, with, with those characters. So I feel like ending at the end. And the final issue is every kind of ending that you can do. I wrote, you know, like a fringe style ending and a and a kind of mean, deep and meaningful ending and a kind of lost style ending. I've done it's everything. Nice. I tried to write, I tried to use all my endings science on it <laughs> as if to say this is the proper end. And if I come back to do more, it will be because I've got no money and I'm going to lose my house. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that happening, but it, we, we would certainly welcome more stories. But I guess the, the point is you should always leave people wanting more. Oh, definitely. I mean, they may not want any more after they read that final issue. Believe me, I look forward to seeing what people think of it. Uh, but, you know, it's got everything that a normal issue of Giant Days has in it, but it's on a much bigger budget. You know, it's it's on a much bigger budget. There's a, there's a lot of very exciting things happen in the, uh, in the As Time Goes By special. Yeah. Now, I know Sarah is probably going to want to be part of this one. Did you know any of these characters at university yourself? <laughs> well, I think to an extent, like if I, I can't say like this one is my friend, you know, Susan Smith. And this is my friend Esther Jones. And this is my okay. friend Daisy Briggs, because they aren't, you know, there's little tiny bits of lots and lots and lots of people that I knew. I never, you know, I knew people who were as angry at times as Susan is with the world, but. I never knew a Susan. Um, they're more, it's so boring to say, they're composites. They're bits of my personality bolted onto bits of other people's personality. They're kind of they're kind of terrible Frankensteins of bad behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will just jump in there and say when I first started reading Giant Days when it first came out, 
I was just looking at it going, they basically just divided me at university into the three terrible, terrible facets of my personality. Um, although I didn't go to university in the north of England, I am painfully southern. I went to an incredibly southern university. But all of the characters that you present, I did just read them going, well, I know who that is. And I know who that is. And I have my own Ed Gemmell. Um, and it, it's just so very, very true to the experience of going to a British university, especially as someone who studied English and then had the Esther de Groot existential, what am I going to do with my life type crisis? Oh, no, definitely. And the thing was, it's a very vivid period, like for me still, <laughs> to university, even though it's, you know, I, I left university in 1998. So a lot of my experiences, I thought, I thought they aren't going to be relevant. And the longer the series went on, the further into the rearview mirror, my university life got, I thought, I'm not going to get away with this because life will have changed so much. But yeah, it doesn't seem to have done that. It's a, it's a bit like what we were saying before, where, you know, now people are odds all the time, but yet life seems to go on regardless. In the end, people haven't changed that much. Technology's changed. The political climate may have changed, but in the end, our reactions haven't really changed at all. And when we you boil us down, we pretty much behave in the same way we probably did, you know, in 1790, you know. Mm. It, it, and, and I think the university experience, it's really interesting to me that people seem to see little bits of their own lives in it, because... It's published in lots of different countries now. It's in Spanish and French and German and and Polish. And it seems to go over equally well there as well. So I'm just lucky, really. Thank you. <laughs> now, we're talking about personalities. I'm going to throw this out there. How far off base would I be if I made this analogy? Esther, Susan and Daisy equal id, ego and superego. That's that's absolutely right. Yes, that's that's it. Yeah, that's I thought that right at the start. <laughs> yeah, you yes. Okay, well, in issue one of the Boom series, Susan does say, I'm a human common sense silo. So, so that had me leading in that direction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. There are lots of things that, like, I don't think about things that hard, but I realized almost immediately that that was what I was doing with those characters. But it makes them, if you give yourself really strict rules about characters, it helps you to keep them on, on path. Yeah. You know, if they, if they have, I mean, I wasn't always thinking that because, but the sort of a sort of vague, abstract, floaty sense that was always around each of those faces when I thought about them in my head and how they would respond to things, and it just kind of kept them all on their rail, you know, the whole time. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I get lucky every now and again. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> well done. Do you have a favorite Giant Days moment? Um, I have favorite issues. My favourite issue is issue 26 when um, Dean Thompson's uh, girlfriend arrives. Yes, in the gamer world. Yeah. The gamer world. The gamer world, which is, again, it's a sort of the, one of the loopier issues. So there are a few issues which are properly loopy where I'm just allowed, I just thought, this issue, I'm just going to go nuts and see what people make of it. And they weren't always people's favourite issues. There's one, issue 44, which is the Valenbrines issue. Yeah. issue, which I didn't type out on the computer i drew it all rough in my sketchbook the way i would draw one of my web comics and i just typed it typed up what i'd written because i knew i wanted it to be really loopy and if it, i'm just left to draw i'll draw things that are slightly wackier awful word wacky but zany's worse <laughs> um and, but, but situations that are more outlandish shall we say um than if i were to sit and type it because you still kind of second guess when you're in front of a typewriter and you can go faster so you know you can overcome your mistakes 
and kind of do little do-overs almost editing as, as you go but so those the Van Brines issue mm. and the uh, and yeah Dean Thompson and Poppy I think her name was his uh his girlfriend yeah I just something about those issues I was laughing when I was writing them I was just enjoying myself <laughs> I loved Susan as a detective in issue 21, where she has to re- recapture uh, Daisy's parents. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. And then you tie back into that over in 46, where you did a whole Sin City homage. The Frank Miller issue. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Susan was always meant to be a bit more detectively. Yeah, that was kind of in the DNA of the character, again, right at the start. And then it turned out there wasn't that much space to do that, or it was a bit heavy handed. And so it was. It sort of fit into that slightly more heightened version of the comic that it was at first, and then I made it a little more down to earth. But again, you can tease out these strands if they're buried underneath, and just bring them to the fore a little bit. And that Frank Miller issue, I just knew Max would be really good at doing that kind of kind of uh, black and white issue. I, I, I just knew it would look good. Yeah, and when when Daisy and Esther show up too, <laughs> and manage to insinuate themselves into that world. That was pretty, that was, loopy is the perfect word. Yeah, no, they don't have very no question. internal, yeah, very bad internal monologues. They don't really know yeah. how to do it. They've not really, they've not really got to grips with the form. <laughs> now, I have a couple of, I guess we'll call them extra credit questions to, to use one of the titles sure. of your, your trade collections. Might we ever see new Scary Go Round reprints or could there be an Allison Omnibus set of volumes? Well, I, the, the problem with a scary ground omnibus is it means that I have to sit with about, I don't know how many hundred, I think it's about 1,500 pages of comics that I drew 15 years ago and stare at them. And I don't <laughs> want to do that. Yeah. That's the long and short of it. I, I know it sounds like I, I've been asked by multiple comics companies to do reprints of them, asked if I want to do them or I don't. I just don't want to have to deal with that work ever again. I, I want to keep moving forward and making new stuff and months spent tweaking old artwork. It's just it's not a good look for me. So um, I, I I know that people sort of want it. And at the same time, I absolutely don't want to ever have to do that. So there you are. That's the, that's the true answer. I just don't that's want to a, do it. That's That's great. We love honesty around you. That's perfect. Uh, speaking of all this old work, is there a recommended reading order? I think there is on the Scary Garand site, but the Scary Garand site is somewhat abandoned and falling apart. It's a little bit like a, a summer house that you haven't visited for a few summers. And, you know, the whitewash is all flaking off now and one of the windows is cracked. Um, but there is a there is a recommended reading order. But really, I think Giant Days is kind of the place to start because it's the broadest and most approachable work. And it has a, be- a beginning and an end. You know, and then you can kind of plug into the the other parts of the universe as you see fit. You know, Scary Ground again is like seven years of comics, and it has a start and an end. And then there's all the satellite material. Um, mm-hmm. But I I have a funny relationship with it because stuff that I drew and wrote years ago, it's natural for the artist to kind of feel that stuff's inferior. The new stuff, that's the stuff. You know, the new Rolling Stones album is great. Forget Exile on Main Street. <laughs> this is what we're doing now. This is the best one yet. Like you kind of feel that way, and I know that isn't true. So you're better off asking somebody else. You're better off asking you know a, a true fan than the the person whose relationship with it is kind of jaundiced by familiarity, unfortunately. But yeah, Giant Days is the place to start. But I 
think all the stuff I've done in recent years has been pretty decent, though. Giant Days and By Night and Bad Machinery. I'm really proud of all of them. I think I kind of there's a point where I, I got a bit better at making comics, and all three of those series are well worth a go. I began that way. Giant Days was a, a, a title brought to my attention by Steve, my co-host, and I started reading it, fell in love, and was trade waiting and then i just couldn't <laughs> I, I couldn't i couldn't wait that long between adventures so now i buy the single issues and i buy the trades because you have all those cover galleries all that sketch work in the back that's actually your designs for these these folks and and ah so yeah i i recommend your reading order yeah start with giant days everybody and explore the rest of the tackleford universe yeah, because Bad Machinery, there's those great little books, the the pocket edition books now yes. as well. They're really, it's a really approachable series. We're now just putting out the last three. So again, it's a set of ten books, and it's kind of done. So you know, again, it's and you can you can have a start and an end with that one. And I think that's that's kind of what people need. You know, like I, I get. I can get to 10 volumes of a manga series and then my interest begins to wane. Um, you know, there's just a certain point of saturation where it's like my desire to proceed starts to diminish. But I think Giant Days and Bad Machine are about the right length, I think, right number of pages. Now, do you have a bucket list collaborator or a character you'd like a shot at? Oh, I'm not super into the idea of like kind of Marvel and writing and marvel characters just because there's so many stories already how on earth are you ever going to top them you know mm. uh i don't you know people who like al ewing who are really great at kind of tunneling in between the existing material and then kind of opening out a niche like like the hulk in secret wars it's kind of like they're like opening out the rocks like making a little shelter for everybody else to go yes. underneath yeah <laughs> so there are characters i really like and i love seeing other people do them but Dream collaborators. There are so many good artists working in comics. I mean, I spoke about Warwick Johnson Cadwell earlier. I'd love to work with Warwick, and we've we've got close at times. But let me think. Like Vera Brosgill, one of my very favourite artists. Although Vera yes. writes all her own stuff, but um, Vera once did two guest strips for me, and they completely changed the way I thought about my characters. Just the way she drew them was so good and so she found something in them that i'd never seen before so you know that's nice but but again i'd have to like go over to the shelf and start rifling around to try and find my dream collaborators in fact i was i'm trying to lean over to the shelf now might be further away from the uh, from the microphone to actually see an uh, artist i love is the french artist penelope bajer who did the mama cass uh, california dreaming book and mm -hmm. um She's doing an adaptation of The Witches, Roald Dahl's The Witches at the moment. She's been posting Ooh. it. But, but Bajer is sort of my favourite artist at the moment. And I'd love just to have her do a cover for me. You know, so good. Nick Roach, who does Transformers um, and has done covers for the new Death's Head book. Nick's a friend of mine and I love his work. I'd love to work with him. Working with anybody talented is good. You know, it's just exciting. It's just exciting to see what they come up with. In my head, just because I think along these terms, I'd love to see you work with Erica Henderson, who does who did Squirrel Girl. Well, I do know Erica. Erica and I are friends as well. And um, at one point, we were talking about something. <gasps> but I, I was I was doing uh, three ser working on three series at the time, and I I tried to come up with an idea 
for us to work on. And I swear, you've never seen a more broken mind attacking a Word document. <laughs> the, character, the characters' names aren't even proper characters' names. They're just kind of like placeholder strings of characters. And I was like, Erica, do you know what? You're amazing, but I just actually don't think I've got a single brain cell left for you. It was a very sad state of affairs, but I hope one day to work with Erica. She's, a, she's an amazing artist and, you know, just puts so much into every page, so much life and joy. Yeah, great, great. I love Erica Henderson. Well, I'm glad I put that out there then. Maybe it's in the universe now. It's in the universe, exactly. I say these things are in the air. There's a few people who I've talked to, but it really is a case of schedules and kind of like what book will do well right now. Because, again, it's, it's a tricky old marketplace and kind of working out where something will fit in is sometimes the hardest thing. Awesome. Uh, folks, anyone have anything else before I start launching into some craziness? I'm really anxious to hear these, uh, these okay. hit and run questions you got, Bob. They're fun. Okay, uh, it's something we do now and again, and I'm calling it the five spot just because I'm an old jazz head, and that's an old club in New York that Thelonious Monk used to play in. But it's a bunch of hit and run quick questions for you, John. You up for okay. that? Okay, uh, absolutely. I'm up for it. You may not like my answers. Oh, there's no wrong it. answers. <laughs> okay, here we go. Continental breakfast or full on morning melee? Oh, continental breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I don't even have to think about that. I just, I like, I like the breads, I like the jams, a bit of fruit, good for your digestion. I can't get in there with all the the sausages and the bacon, the American <laughs> breakfast food. Yeah, that's it's too dangerous. I'm 42. My insides aren't going to take it anymore. It's <laughs> <laughs> a heart attack on a plate. Yes. <laughs> you go into a, a morning breakfast place here, and there's a sandwich that's really, literally called the heart attack. Exactly. And, and that's, you know, once I say, once you start nearing your 50th birthday, yeah, that's a very real possibility every time you bite into one of those. You've got to be very careful. <laughs> okay. um, time with friends or time alone? Oh, that's not saying anything too good about my friends, is it? Time alone. <laughs> time alone. I think I, I need a bit of time alone to recharge. If I had to choose, if I was with friends all the time, I'd eventually just go crazy. But when I'm on my own, I can pretty much fill the time. I'm pretty good. I, I spent a lot of time as a kid on my own. I'm pretty practiced at it. Are you an only? As Esther? An only child? Uh, yeah. No, I'm not. I have a brother, but he's really sporty and outdoorsy. He's a cop. He's really physically strong. And otherwise, I'm more like Gollum, you know, a kind of you know, <laughs> shadow creature. So, um, so he was out and about all the time, you know, sibling differentiation. So, um, and we, we get on very well still. But no, um, I wasn't an only child. I just acted like one. <laughs> favorite fictional character. Favorite fictional character from any medium? Oh, favorite fictional character. Andy Sipowitz from NYPD Blue. He's flawed, but he's trying to do his best. Wow. Do you remember his character? Do you with yes. Dennis Franz? Dennis Franz. Yeah, yeah, always kind of like smoothing his thinning hair back. <laughs> all long at the back. I, he's perhaps the greatest character, like the most influential in character on you know, in terms of writing, where I think, how did they do that? How did they put that together? How did they create that mirage? Yeah, Andy Sipowitz. Wow. I would never have expected that. But now that you say that, some of the your side characters have bits of Andy in them. Oh, definitely. Oh, I've yeah. got about 10 Andy Sipowitz. Yes. <laughs> Just kind of digging. There's loads of them. You can find yeah. loads of Andy Sipowitz's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on that sort of front, movies, black and white mm. or color? Oh, well, I I do like black and white movies, and I more and more I enjoy the sophistication 
because we, we you know we think we're the most sophisticated we've ever been but actually when you watch old movies they're faster they're more kind of daring in a lot of cases in more socially straightened times you know when you look at the context so these days black and white movies I remember there's an interview that Orson Welles did, a whole book of them with Peter Bogdanovich, where he was challenging Bogdanovich on this sort of point about, I'd throw away all the color movies. I, I, I'd, I dare you to cite me a bad performance in black and white, Orson told Peter Bogdanovich. And he went, okay, so, yeah, good for you. Okay, uh, we we have promised not to not to be profane and and F and J around here as, as <laughs> no, been cited. So I'm going to clean up the name of this parlor game to Love Marry Leave. All right. Okay. Sure. Esther Daisy Susan. Oh, that's a horrible trick to play. Leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I've now got to think about the analogs to make sure I get this right. There's no leave in those three. Oh, what an awful thing to say. But but Esther, I think, would, would eventually drive you up the wall. So she's going to have to be leave. I think love then is going to be then Daisy. But I think marry Susan, because you've got to have a bit of oyster, a grit in the uh, oyster to make a pearl, haven't you? Anyway. Wow. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> I want that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that was perfect, John. Well, as long as I haven't given away too much about myself with those answers, I'm a bit worried now. I mean, this is going to come back to haunt me. People come and just making me watch black and white films all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and your friends are all going to come crawling out of the woodwork to watch them with you. Well, like, I've really cussed them, haven't I? But, you know, I've got to tell the truth. I've got to tell the truth about this. They're not going to like it if I'm just around there all the time, but I'm crying constantly. Just get out of here. No, go. <laughs> Uh, I mean, on, on that front, John, it's just been amazing chatting with you about this. And I promised that I wouldn't get schmaltzy. Uh, I Count Giant Days are one of the most fully realized books that I've read and not just comics. And in my reread uh, over the last couple of days, I have laughed and cried alternately. And not everyone's going to get the chance to do this. So I'm going to simply say thanks for everyone that you've touched with your various works. Oh, it's my pleasure. I say I, I make this stuff so that people will get something out of it. You know, it's, I don't want to be just throwing fodder on the pile. I'm trying to make books that people will get to sit with for a little while. And, you know, it's like kind of a friend, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, it's nice to have a book that feels a bit like a friend when it comes out and you're pleased to see it. That's kind of my aim with books. So thank you very much. No, and it, it is coming to an end. But there's a there's a quote from issue 36 the household has been destroyed but the friendship is stronger than ever well there you go you see i'm, I'm constantly planting these seeds yeah I'm very, very pleased <laughs> good job me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well on the back there we go john uh we could probably go on for days well giant days i suppose but the old no. clock <laughs> clock on the wall is saying that we really should let you go and, and wrap this up is there anything you'd like to say in closing? And where can our listeners find you on the old interwebs and social media thingies? Um, the, I have little else to add. I think I've given a good account of myself. I'm going to yes, you know, <laughs> administer that pat on my own back later. Uh, no, people can find me on the web at scarygoround.com. On Twitter, I'm at Bad Machinery. On Instagram, I'm at Bad Machinery. On MySpace, I'm no, I'm not on MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
really no really have nothing to say check out giant days the the trades the single issues the by night collections are coming out and i think people enjoy those too there's a new bad machinery out book eight the case of the modern men i I say i've done my best pick them up if you don't like them throw them over a wall that's all i can say (laughs) john uh, thank you so much for joining us today we had an absolute blast and i know our listeners are too so thanks thank you very much bye-bye Cheers, bye. Hey, everybody, we are back. Thank you so much to John Allison for joining us this week. And thank you again to Joey for uh, arranging all of it. I know that he wanted to be here, but, you know, the Dolphins call. That's what you got to (laughs) do. Yeah. All right. Um, Before we get out of here and we uh, we read our books, we have a listener question from Robin. Robin Faines, a long time ago, we've been trying to get to this one. Uh, I can't promise that I'm going to have a good answer for you, Robin. I'm so sorry. But we're going to do it because it's long overdue. Robin asks, what book, long form fiction or comic, do you feel represents your country's culture the most fully or in some crucial way? Uh, There's a second question here. What book in your high school or college curriculum left an indelible mark, positive or negative? Love you, Sarah. She also wrote. <laughs> I see. Aww. Favoritism it is, then. <laughs> Here it is. I'm well, she knows it. who the English major is in our group, Steve. Uh, I'm glad I don't have a good answer. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, Sarah, since you're obviously the favorite, why don't you go yeah. first? Okay, so it's a two-part question. The first part of the question, I don't really have an answer for because I don't think it's possible to categorise England or Great Britain or the United Kingdom just through one book. Um, I think there's a lot of different books that you could use to categorise a lot of different things. Um, I would certainly say that Giant Days is an amazing representation of my time at university. Uh, so if you if you wanted to read that, um, there's definitely a lot of things in there that made me think a lot about when I was at uni. Um, but as to the whole of the country, I just I just don't think that's possible. I think it is so different in so many different places and so many different ways. Um, but a book or books that left an indelible mark on me. Um, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but I'm a bit of a feminist. I don't know no. if that ever comes across what? in any no, way. No, no, no. Good for you. Okay. Though. Okay. okay. Wrong podcast. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I very, very vividly remember reading Handmaid's Tale Um and having actual stand-up arguments with my English teacher about the meaning behind it. Um, that book left a huge impression on me, and I have read it more times than I can think of since then. Um, although I haven't actually watched the TV adaptation of it, because I got like two episodes in and just went, this is just making me feel sick. It's too much like reality, and I can't watch it. Um, but that book certainly had um, a, a very deep effect on me. Um I mean, there's so, so many books that I read 
um, anything to do with Arthurian history, um, Once and Future King especially, was was one of the books that I read a number of times when I was at university. I did manage to write a sort of 30,000 word dissertation on The Legend of King Arthur, which I won't bore you about overly. Um, but I got a Monty Python quote in, so I was quite pleased with it. So um, that was that was another book that really, really stuck with me. But certainly the book that had the biggest impact on me, without a doubt, was Handmaid's Tale. Um, and if somehow anybody listening hasn't read it, please do go and read it. Um, because we are living in the dark times at the moment. Um, and I think it's important for people to maybe realise where we could be going. Um, and I do hope that we're not. But, you know, the policing of women's bodies is incredibly important and incredibly relevant to the times in which we live. Um, so, yeah, there's my answer. Is that right, we also Steve? live in a time right where cable companies are making money hand over fist for their adaptation of that book. Yes, yes, they are, which um, I have a number of issues with the adaptation of that book. Um, I have some issues with the lead actor in the adaptation um, and her personal political and religious views. They don't sit overly well with me, um, which is why I'm saying read the book and not just read the book, take it out from the library and read it. Support your local libraries, people. There's, there's another soapbox for me to bang on about. Um. <laughs> Stack those boxes. <laughs> I can tell you, my local library has not had that book on the shelf in probably a year. Good. It is always out to somebody. That that does that does make me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other book, or another book that's had a huge impact on my life... I don't actually think we ever read it at school, but anyone who's ever met me knows how much I love and adore Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, yeah I knew um, that was coming. <laughs> how many copies do I own now? Twenty-five, maybe thirty. Wow. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to pair at my bookshelf at the moment. Um, I have a minor of what? what? When would I have read A Handmaid's Tale? You've not read Handmaid's Tale or Alice in Wonderland. What? Well, I've read Alice in Wonderland. I have like, oh, that's the, right, then. the gold leaf paged version of that. I got <laughs> you that. You haven't piece. read Handmaid's Tale. No. Well, go and rectify that, please. I am a heathen. This is what I do. I disappoint people. <laughs> <laughs> well, go and read it. I'm actually pointing it out my door. You can't see me, but I'm pointing at the door. Go Tell on. Tell me to get out. I'm telling you to go and read it. Oh, okay. Go and read Handmaid's Tale. All right. Maybe you can send me one of your 30 copies. No, no, no. I've got 30 copies of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, okay. I've got one copy of Handmaid's Tale. I've probably bought about 10 copies in my life, but I always end up giving them away to people mm. that haven't read it, she said, glaring at Steve. <laughs> See, there was there was another book I thought you would mention, and because you mentioned giving away copies, I have a, a copy of a book of yours here, A Room with a View. Oh, you see, we never studied A Room with a View. Did we we study A Room with a View? No, we were supposed to, and then they made us study something incredibly boring instead. I can't remember what. But A Room with a View is another absolutely stunning and gorgeous book that also says quite a lot about the political landscape in the UK at the moment, strangely, given that it was written so very long ago. But yes, good point. Uh, Bob, let's, let's hear your answer. Answers. What's that? Answers, I, I guess. Answers? 
Well, it's a two-part question. Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, uh, being flippant, a, a book that represents our country's culture of present, I don't know, The Hunger Games? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, we, we, we won't go there. But uh, I, I'm not far from that. Certainly, 1984 comes to mind. Double speak yeah. and political craziness. And uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Yep. Not just for false witch hunts, but real ones. Uh, let's go, go there because a lot of things are under attack just because people think they can get away with it. But for me... Uh, Again, I went to school a long time before you folks. And so some of the books that you even talk about weren't, the, the authors weren't even born yet when I was going to school. So forgive me about this, but I think you can always cite John Steinbeck and his work as being representative of America and considering the divides between rich and poor and everything else. The Grapes of Wrath mm. is one of those things that is just still powerful 80 years after it was written. So that's my answer for that. As to books that left an indelible mark on me, there's a Steinbeck piece for that, too, of Mice and Men with yeah. Lenny and George, certainly. The play Inherit the Wind by Robert Lee and Jerome Lawrence, which was about the Scopes Monkey Trial and evolution on trial in the 1920s in Tennessee. Education is still under attack here, folks. It's a long time in coming, and we're, we're still at that. Um... I didn't do this in school, I'm sorry, but I will throw it in because someone else was going to school and she had to study it. So we did a paper about Arthur Miller's death of a salesman, which is very powerful. And back in the ninth grade, I've told the story of my English teacher, Mr. Sullivan, throwing all his books out the window. And one of the things that we came back to read, we had read The Odyssey. And one of the things he then added that we should read is, is sort of the follow-up by Euripides, Medea. Mm. She is certainly a powerful female protagonist <laughs> who does some really dicey things. If people who haven't read it, I will throw it out there. You probably should. It is, if you remember the tale of Jason and the Argonauts, Jason in the midst of all that takes takes a wife and brings her home. And she's a the sorceress Medea who doesn't like being put aside for somebody else. She was thought to be better. And <laughs> I can't say, I don't, it's 3,000 years old and I'm, I'm trying not to spoil it. Read Medea, <laughs> trust me. You should read Medea. Also, never scorn a woman. Oh, yes. Especially one who can do what Medea can do. All right. Uh, those are all your answers, Bob? Yep. All right. So uh, I don't know, unfortunately, how much I have for this. I was not really – I was a reader, but I was an adamant reader. And by adamant, I mean that I was interested in the books that I wanted to read and was not interested in the books that were a part of the curriculum for school. I was very much that kid that when it came time to hand in your book report – or talk about it in front of the class that I flubbed uh, big time. Aww. And especially when there would be movie versions and we were given opportunities to earn extra credit by watching the movies. And well. I lied about watching the movies too. <laughs> <What>? <gasps> I know. Steven. I know. 
all I wanted to read was Clive Barker and Stephen King and stuff like that. And like, I remember there was this book, The K, and I can't even tell you what it was about, but like the cover of it just bored me to tears. And I was like, there's no way I'm doing this. It's terrible. Um, I did appreciate as, as much as I didn't understand a lot of it, um, couldn't follow much of it. I did enjoy Shakespeare when we would do that stuff. I thought that was all very cool. Uh, but let's see. Books that represent country's culture. Nobody else wanted to go dark. I'll go dark for you a little <laughs> bit. Uh, unfortunately, March is certainly mm. a uh, pinnacle of uh, comicdom that, that mm. stands for a real nasty part of our history. Uh, but a compelling story, nonetheless, that you could learn just so, so, so much from. Um, and unfortunately, when I think about, you know, my home country of America, the books that stand out to me as being part of the culture, very sadly, I can't express this enough, are the benefit collections that have been coming out for the past several years, whether it be due to shooting, prejudice, both combined, uh, take your pick. There's been about three really amazing collections, maybe even more than I'm unaware of. Uh, I think Where We Live was one of yeah. them. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, this has become a very large part of American culture. American culture is in the toilet right now. And there's a lot of work to be done. And if you're asking me what books reflect where America's at as a culture right now, those are the books. Because it's a scary, scary place to live where you can't even... We went to a concert see the faint a couple of weeks ago in Detroit. We drove over fantastic show. One of the best I've ever seen, but it was a little scary going in there and, and like finding parking and being in this, you know, we drove through Flint where they're having uh, the water crisis, the ongoing water crisis. Yes. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was really, it was really eye opening to be in that area. And then not two weeks after we were at that show, there was uh, like a big news story about there being uh, shootings in Detroit. And like, I don't know that it was in that area or on that block or anything uh, that close to that show. But the idea that even going to see a band like the faint in this tiny club with, with, you know, the mood being what it is and the lights being what they are and security being as lax as it is. Although I will say that L club had really good security, but, um, we're living in really, you know, really scary times that, uh, you know, anything can happen at any time. And all it takes is, is one really evil person to make it go down. And, um, you know, I have hope and everything like that uh, for the future. And I, I hope that generations that come after us are uh, going to have their heads screwed on a bit better. But uh, the damage that's been done, uh, particularly in the last few years, mm. uh, I think, unfortunately, will be long lasting and whoever is going to clean up the mess or attempt to clean up the mess is going to have a lot of uh, a lot of work to do and i don't necessarily have faith in the idea of it going smoothly because i i i think that the the monsters of the nation are out from under the bed now and it's going to be very very difficult to stuff them back down um on another note I'll, I'll i'll say this yeah that. i i agree we've seen the the dark underbelly and it's ugly Mm -hmm. I think young people 
are becoming more and more energized. Yes. And the last election, the last presidential election in this country would have gone differently if young people had voted in the same percentages as us older folks. Mm-hmm. So I am fingers crossed that that energy that we're feeling down here uh, translates to November. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, there are days I'm just, I, I get so sick of it. I'm so sick of the lies. I'm so sick of the, the excuses. And uh, it's just, it's too much. Uh, as far as books that were part of a school, high school or college curriculum that left an indelible mark on me, uh, I was really taken by the book Animal Farm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, that that book, incredible. And uh, another book that I really liked, even though I only tend to think about the final scene in this book, is of mice and men. Yeah, with uh, yeah. you know, Lenny and George. Tell me the about bunnies. the rabbits, George. Tell me about the yeah, rabbits, George. And so that ties in a little bit to the culture as well, mm-hmm. and you know what we do to each other when uh, people can't be understood. And, and you know, better better to take them out than to allow them to, to, to keep being the way they are and possibly make a, make a mockery of, of what you're trying to stand for or create. They've, they've gotten in the way, and it's just easier to take them off the board, uh, which is a disgusting, you know, uh, philosophy and, and action. You know, we need to bring people together uh, not separate from one another. So, yeah, those are my cheery ass answers. <laughs> Aren't you glad you waited so many weeks to hear yes, that? Absolutely, Robin. Robin, I'm sure is very appreciative. Here's I'm, the thing, sure. Steve. If you if you've never gotten the chance, because it's now 80 years old this year, the original movie version of, of Mice and Men from 1939 was nominated for Best Picture, directed mm-hmm. by a film named Lewis Milestone, stars Lon Chaney Jr. as Lenny. And Burgess Meredith as George. I love Burgess Meredith. And seeing him young like that as a score by Aaron Copeland, Mm -hmm. it'll it'll break your heart all over again. So what are we looking forward to this coming Wednesday? That'll help. Yeah. Everything. There's a a book coming (laughs) out called The Midnight Vista. Have you guys heard of this? No. No. Okay, so let me let me give you the pitch. Midnight Vista number one. Oliver Flores and his stepfather. Nomar Perez were turning right onto Midnight Vista Road when they were both abducted by aliens. To Oliver's mother, they were both just missing. To the police, they were declared legally dead. And to everyone else growing up in Albuquerque, Oliver Flores was the milk carton kid. His life was the cautionary tale of an eight-year-old boy who was kidnapped and killed by his stepdad while out on uh, to go get some ice cream. But now, years later, a fully grown adult Oliver walks back into town and <laughs> he, has, he has been returned and he remembers everything. This sounds to me almost like a comic book uh, send off to Fire in the Sky. If anybody remembers that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I like alien abduction stories. I think they're a lot of fun. This might be uh, worth checking out. Uh, I'm probably going to end up reading a bunch of people's books, so maybe I'll let you guys go first. Bob, what are you picking up this week? Well, amazingly enough, Doomsday Clock for 11. Yes, <laughs> it is finally here. You've been it enjoying is... it, though, for all the jokes you have been enjoying it. Yes, I, I, do, I don't enjoy the delays. I don't enjoy the craziness that surrounds DC, where Jeff Johns has sort of been uh, sent to a gulag 
in essence, that it's it's the Snyderverse. Because in Doomsday Clock 11, my understanding is we are going to get to see what has become of the Justice Society, who are now being introduced also in Justice League 31 by Scott Snyder. So you have competing versions of the classic characters. I'm going with Jeff Johns, who always did a great job with them. Lois Lane number three is this week. Mm-hmm. We have Future Foundation number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, big book of the week for me, The Return of Pretty Deadly. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that all you got? That's it. All right, Sarah, what about you? Okay, I have got Crowded number nine. Really excited about that. Um, I've got Die number seven. Um, absolutely cracking book. Can't get enough of that. Obviously, Pretty Deadly, The Rat, number one. Uh, the Dreaming, number 13. I spoke about that a while ago. The Size Spirea one in the Sandman universe. That's really, really good. Um, Future Foundation, number two. Giant Days, number 54. Wicked and Divine, number 45. <gasps> me, me and Joey, we're going to pull one out next week. Um, I'll be there. Okay. Me, Joey, and Steve, and Bob. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's going to pull one out for Wicked and Divine number 45. Um, there's also a book coming out called Something is Killing the Children. Oh, is that come out this week? That's coming out this week. Yeah. And oh, I've written it down list. and I know that I want to read it. But do you think I can remember what it's about? I wrote it down and I was like, I know I need to read this book because Kieran Gillen said it looked really good. But I've got uh, no idea what it's about. <laughs> I didn't realize that that was this Wednesday. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to that book and don't know what it's about. As as is the way of things, I'm desperately trying to find it now in my notes. But All right, well, you look for that. I'll read my list super quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got Giant Days number 54, Lois Lane number 3, Crowded number 9, Die number 7, Pretty Deadly, The Rat number 1, Redneck number 23, Sea of Stars, number three. Wicked of the Divine, number 45. Uh, Fantastic Four, number 14. Future Foundation, number two. Something is Killing the Children, number one. Just added. Uh, House of X, number four. And A Web of Black Widow, number one. Okay. Something is Killing the Children. Glad award-winning writer James Tyne in the fourth and artist Wertha Deladera team up for an all-new limited series about staring into the abyss to find your worst fears staring back. When the children of Archer's Peak begin to go missing, everything seems hopeless. Most children never return, but the ones that do have terrible stories, impossible stories of terrifying creatures that live in the shadows. Their only hope of finding and eliminating the threat is the arrival of a mysterious stranger, one who believes the children and claims to see what they can see. Her name is Erica Slaughter. She kills monsters. That is all she does, and she bears the cost because it must be done. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I may have gone full dramatic reading for that. <laughs> Sold it. Yeah, that's a that's a read for sure, man. I'm pumped. I didn't realize that was coming out so soon. Yep. Oh boy! Also, the cover, the cover looks amazing. There are two covers for it, um, but I think this is a standard cover. But it's like trees, but the shape of some of the trees look like hands, and then there's always red eyes in them. And then just in front of them, there's a woman holding like a massive sword with a push bike. I can hear my wallet sobbing from the other room. Right <laughs> Good. <now>. Good. <laughs> Weeping oh, leather tears. 
<laughs> All right. So those are the books that we're looking forward to. Uh, I don't think anybody has any closing statements. Nope. nope. All right. Uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be the Four Horsemen next week. I'm pretty sure. And uh, we'll have. It sounds like we'll have a ton of comics to talk to you guys about. My God. Um, <laughs> once again, thank you, thank you to John Allison for visiting us. Uh, definitely a bucket list interview for us. We really hope that you all enjoyed it. Definitely go and check out John's books, and uh, you know, go and buy all fifty-four issues of Giant Days or the nice, the nice hardcovers that exist, all broken up into semesters. They're quite lovely. And then read them all in one day, like Sarah did. Yeah, that's right, champion. No, wait, don't do that. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've reached the end of this week's edition of the Talking Comics Podcast. As always, you can send us your comments or questions through our email, podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com. We are also on Twitter, at Talking Comics. Don't forget to check out talkingcomicbooks.com for reviews from our fantastic contributors. And please go and listen to Talking Valiant, D&D Adventure, and of course, the ladies of Valhalla. Bob, where can our listeners find you? Old-fashioned email, Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com. And how about you, sir? You can find me everywhere that media is social. I am at Geek Country Lady. Uh, remind me, what is your next Ladies of Valhalla topic? Our next Ladies of Valhalla topic, we are going to be looking at every single issue of The Unstoppable Wasp, <gasps> and we're going to be joined by Mr. Jeremy Whitley. Whitley! So- so if you have got um any questions or comments about any of the unstoppable wasp um not just the issues that just came out but also the ones that he did previously um please do get in touch you can find us at valhalla ladies on social media or we are ladies of valhalla at gmail.com um we know it's going to be a big show and we've already got a lot to talk to jeremy about but we absolutely love it when we get listener questions and comments in so um by all means send us your thoughts there you go uh we will not have a guest next week at least i don't think so you never know (laughs) never know though we hope that you guys have been uh enjoying all the guest spots we've certainly been having fun recording them uh i am at dead underscore anchoress on twitter and instagram so for bob uh every Everybody, please make yourself some giant days of your own. No, for Sarah. Have a great week, everyone. I have always been and always will be, Steve Say. Thank you so much for listening. Loan each other comic books. Until next time on the Talking Comics Podcast. To be continued. John, it is a we are mostly kid and family friendly. That doesn't mean if you feel the need to throw in a swear word here and again, we are not averse to that either. Bob, there will be no effing and jeffing from me today. Okay. I'm gonna keep it gonna keep it clean. Okay. <laughs> I love the fact that you said effing and jeffing. I've never met anyone in the world apart from me and my dad who say that. <laughs> well, it's it's a good way of you know summarising a whole like you know a whole carnival of foul language, isn't it? <laughs>